Blog Talk Radio. Hey guys, welcome to the July 15th edition of Rubber Guard Radio. I am your host, KZ. Uh, this episode of Rubber Guard Radio is brought to you by our sponsors, FrogCityWrestling.com. Keep your eyes out at FrogCityWrestling.com for all the news and, and upcoming information for the San Francisco's only independent promotion that runs in the city. Uh, also, our other sponsor would be WrestleWarehouse.com. Uh, you need uh, wrestling DVDs, uh, T-shirts, WWE swag, all kinds of other stuff. Uh, you can get it there. Um, also, SoCal Pro Wrestling, um, any of the DVDs from this, this year have just been top-notch. Um, I, you know, you can't go wrong. You've got Adam Pierce, SoCal Crazy, uh, all kinds of different guys. And Mr. Derek Bergen was so kind as to uh, to review the March 22nd, 2008 uh, March Madness SoCal Pro Show. You can get that review at F4WOnline.com. Um, Derek Bergen, you know, is a well-known uh, internet uh, uh, reviewer and whatnot, so uh, check them out. And also, I, I am proud to announce that SoCal Pro Wrestling in San Diego is the newest member of the National Wrestling Alliance. Uh, this was announced at this past weekend's show, so congratulations go out to uh, Mr. Jeff Dino. Uh, Jeff, proud of you, brother. Uh, what more can I say? Wow, big news. But uh, let's check the phone lines here. I have on the line Mr. Max Payne. Good evening. Maxwell. Good evening. Part two, brother. Part two. How you guys doing tonight? Oh, fine and dandy. It's just me. I'm waiting for my tag team partner to call in. Oh well, you know. Sometimes you know you gotta wait for that hot tag, brother. That's it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> when when we got cut off last week, we uh. We were discussing uh, Mr. Fit Finley and your time in in Austria and Germany for Otto Schwanz, Otto yes. Wands or whatever you want to call him. So um, you ended up uh, with a Fit Finley story. We we got cut right off. Um, I think it was about a bar fight. Yeah, we were. I think we were. I think we'd made it all the way outside, and uh, the car. The guy said to the cop, he said, uh, "Yeah, he was pointing at Joe. It was Joe Cruz, Fit Finley, myself." Um, I believe Larry Cameron was there with us, and uh, the cop had said to him, um, is this the guy? And the guy said, yeah. And Fitz said, no, no. And he said, look, officer, look, this has gone far enough. I'm telling you, it was me that hit the guy. And the, and the cop said, no, it was this guy. And Fitz said, no, no, it, it, it was me. Honestly, it was me, officer. I hit him. And uh, the cop said, no, no, it was this guy. And he said, no, it was... It was me. And the cop looked right at Joe Cruz and says, I don't care what he says, you're going to jail. And right at that moment, the guy that had uh, caused all the ruckus that Fit had hit started a fight with another guy right on top of the cop car, right in front of the cop. So I grabbed Cruz by the arm and I said, let's get out of here. And we vanished into the night and... uh, the story was laid to rest. It was all it was all laid to rest, but it was just one of those miraculous moments that uh, Phil was so amazing. And uh, Cruz kept going. Well, I want to see the rest of that fight. I said, I think this is one time we should probably take a powder. It's best if we go back to the uh, the camping place and uh, 
you know, just avoid the bar for a couple of weeks anyway, you know, just, <laughs> now, to, save, now, just to save any trouble. Now, Max, tell me this. Why in the hell wasn't Joe Cruz a star in the States with the WCW? I think it was because he kind of looked like Barry, Barry Windham. Yeah, but he was yeah. really, really good for, you know, for an underneath guy. He was really talented. You know, you know, I don't understand. I have to, I have to say, probably, um, knowing Joe, Joe was, I love Joe. He was a great guy, but he, he was, and unfortunately, and I don't know if it's an unfortunate thing or what, but I don't know. He was kind of a natural heat seeker. He, he didn't do it intentionally. He would just manage to piss people off a lot of times and not even know why he pissed them off. You know what I mean? And then on top of that, Joe was, uh, he was from a little town in North Carolina called Hickory. And he was really a pretty simple guy. Joe was a, he was quite a, he was quite a simpleton. And uh, I love Joe with, with all my heart. I have great, great memories with Joe. I spent, you know, a lot of time, I spent a whole season in Germany with him. Uh, but I'm not, I never did quite understand that myself because he looked good in the ring. He was a hell of a worker. He's a great bumper. You know, he, he just, he did a lot of things right. I, you know, I, once again, you know, who knows? Who knows what kind of heat he got with the office. I, I never quite understood that myself because they brought him in a lot and used him a lot as an underneath guy, but he just never got a shove. Well, he was one of the one of the few guys, the 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 TV guys that would actually work house shows. And that's right. rather unusual. Um, you know, they had Stallion, they had uh, yeah. George South yeah. and those other guys, you know, where they were an upper-tier t- upper job guy where they yep. would actually go out and work opening matches and, or, you know, second matches. And it, it, yeah. it's amazing because Joe was so talented. He had a really good look. It kind of reminded me of a, of a, of a mix with Magnum T.A. and Barry Windham. Yeah. Where he had oh, Windham's height and, you know, Joe's yeah, uh, Magnum's look. It's, and I, he was built, too. He was, he was a lot bigger than Magnum. And, you know, when he's Joe in his prime, man, he was probably 6'2", 265. You know, he was built. Like a brick shit house, man. He was a magnificent. You know, the other thing is, there's, there's a certain uh, stigma that's attached to guys like Stallion. Now, Stallion's a classic example. You know, he was a great worker. I mean, the guy should have had to push over and over again. But in the WCW, especially. I mean, you have to give Vince a little bit of credit when it comes to that because, you know, Vince was never afraid to push a guy who'd been a job guy for years and years. Did it? You know, over and over again. I think probably initially as a rib, but then found out that there there was a certain sellability. You know, to those guys in the WCW, it was a little different than that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The, you know, once you came in, sort of as that job guy mentality, um, it was tough for you to break that stigma. Um, there, of course, there are exceptions. You know, obviously, but but for the most part, I mean. Um, it just—it was really, really tough to get out of that. Terrorizing is a classic example. When Triple H went down there as terrorizing, you know, they, when they first brought him in, they weren't using him too well. They did a little bit with him, but it behooved him. He moved out very quickly, you know, into the WWF. And uh, so it was guys like Joe thought that if he did stick it out, that, it, that someday he would get a push because they'd notice him. But the WCW's thinking was quite a bit different than that. Mm-hmm. I'd like to welcome to the show my tag team partner and my soulmate, Alex Saint. How you doing, brother? 
Oh goodness, soulmate, Jesus Christ! Hey, um, <laughs> oh, hey, what's going on? Hey, I've actually been here for a little while, man, having having problems. So, um, I just I was just reading some information on you, and then I I, I don't know if we covered this already, but during your time in Germany, you went by the, you didn't go by Max Payne. What name did you go by? Well, originally I started off, um, and they and, and it's funny because I hated the name. Um, at first. <laughs> I first started off as Buffalo Pedersen because they'd had so much, uh, you know, power with and, and so much uh, draw with bull power. You know, they wanted to keep the whole mentality of of the big, you know, uh, bovine, you know, cud-chewing animal for some reason, which Otto Vaughn um, sort of resembled, you know, so it, it was an easy thing for him to to embrace, right? And I hated it from the beginning. And then, and then when I started doing the rock and roll thing and playing the guitar, then they started touting me as heavy metal buffalo, which was even worse, you know, for <laughs> guy from from the states. You know, you certainly don't equate, you know, heavy metal with a buffalo, for God's sakes. You know what I mean? I'm like, guys, you're Maybe killing leopard, me. But- yeah, yeah, a cougar, you know, a mountain lion or something, you know, but not a buffalo, for God's sakes, you know. A badger, for God's sakes, you know. A heavy metal badger would have even been better, for God's sakes. But, it, you know, they they, they just, um, they were really stuck uh, on the heavy metal buffalo. And, and quite honestly, you know, I'll give Otto that. In, in the end, um, the heavy metal buffalo thing really did work out well. And I fought with them pretty heavily. Um, to let me do, I mean, they, to do the heavy metal thing was a battle nonstop. They, they, no matter how much money it drew them, you know, it, it, quite honestly, it was always um, in every organization, including the WWF, it was always, uh, it was always a, a really hard thing because part of the reason was it's funny wrestling's like this. But if you're actually legit in the wrestling business, they don't know how to deal with it. You know what I mean? If you can actually do your gimmick, it fucking blows them away. And they're like, oh, my God, what are, you know, what am I going to do? The guy can really play the guitar. And part of that goes with control. You know, whenever you're dealing with a situation where, you know, the whole promotion and promoter and booker mentality is to maintain, you know, control over you, it's pretty tough to maintain that control over something you have no control over, you know? And so that was part of the thing that was always tough for me. And Otto and and Peter Williams, they initially, even though they had seen the results in Hanover, our houses went up tremendously once the heavy metal Buffalo gimmick caught on. Um, They weren't, Otto wasn't going to do it in the next town, which was Bremen. And I said, fine, I'll send my guitar home. And it, it finally took, the referee, Mick, um, going, you're crazy. If you're going to let this guy send his guitar home, you're, you guys are, have lost your mind. This is a crowd draw and a money draw, and it proved itself right. I mean, that was one of the things that, you know, I sent my tape to Bill Watts, and, and uh, that was one of the things that really attracted them to me for the WCW, even though they, they had two guys who'd done the gimmick previously, neither one of them were legit guitar players. And so 
once once I got to the WCW once again, it was it was still a difficult thing. The WCW didn't exploit the heavy metal thing near as much as they should, but inevitably it was always a challenge. So the heavy metal Buffalo thing stuck until I come to the state. But I did for a while do Max Payne in Germany, very short period of time, and I had T-shirts made there too as well. So. <laughs> For those yep. that are listening live, um, I am going to give away a couple SoCal Pro DVDs and a DVD with all the archives of Rubber Guard Radio, 72-plus uh, episodes. So I have a trivia question. Max, I know you know the answer, and Alex, I know you do too. Now, this is the question. What was the first WWF title that Chris Benoit ever held? And you can call in area code 347 Seven nine four six. I'd love to give away some DVDs. So there it is. Uh, the first time WWF title that Chris Benoit ever held. So call on in, and you have the floor, Alex. Mr. Payne, Alex, yes. are you on there? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. I, I Go ahead, brother. <laughs> okay. So um, you brought up the name, uh, and it looks like we're heading toward that time period now. Anyway, um, we're gonna talk Bill Watt. I think I lost you, brother. Hello? You know, one thing, one thing, well, let me just say something. You know, the Max Payne name goes back a long way. Um, just to show you that, you know, I, I met resistance with the Max Payne name from the very beginning. The Max Payne name was conceived when I was wrestling for New Japan, New Japan Pro Wrestling. In fact, I'd already conceived the name when I went to Japan. Um, I, I had, uh, in fact, I was sitting with... Uh, uh oh gosh now his name's gonna escape me he, his uh brother was the um uh oh god it's right you, you guys don't know it his brother was the uh uh television guy and was a brother love for wwf bruce pritchard Funaki. Master Funaki. yeah bruce no bruce pritchard and his brother what's his brother's oh, okay. name tom tommy Funny. pritchard Tommy, yeah, okay. yeah, when I was when I was in Japan very early on, Tom came over and, and did a, a thing, and he said, you know, Max, the biggest thing you're going to need when you go to the States is a gimmick, and you love this heavy metal thing. And at the time, I was still using Lucifer Payne a little bit, but I'd already thought of the name Max Payne. And it was, uh, you know, I started... I started trying to infiltrate that. In fact, one night I told, I made the mistake, which is part of the reason I got booted from Japan in, in essence because I was one of those guys who liked to think on my own. I didn't think the Japanese wanted, you know, to put this gimmick on me, which had I looked back in retrospect, they would have done. But once again, I wouldn't have been comfortable with. But I, I said something to the press about becoming Max Payne, and uh, they printed it, and the next day, um, the office came to me, Sakaguchi came to me and said, you don't ever do that again. Don't you ever tell the press that, you know, you have your own name and you're going to do this. That's not the way it works here. This is our office and we'll tell you what to do. And so, I, like I said, I've met resistance to my name um, full blast uh, until I went to Lawler's group in 88. What were your thoughts on Bill Watts? You know, Bill Watts, it was funny. I, I tried, I think we talked about this a little bit the last time. I tried to hook up with Bill uh, when he was running the UWF, and he was going to bring me down because Bill, Bill loved shooters, man. He really loved guys who knew how to wrestle. That's why he liked Doc so much, Dr. Dusty Williams. You know, he, he had a, a, a real affection for guys who were legit in the business because he just didn't think there were enough 
amateur wrestlers to protect the business, even though, you know, professional wrestlers are plenty tough enough on their own. But he always liked the fact that there were legitimate shooters in the business. And so um, uh, Bill and I, from the, I mean, Bill is the reason I went to WCW. He's the reason, you know, that, that I got my shot down there. Um, and uh, I was very sad when Bill left because I think if Bill would have stayed, um, things may have been a little different for me uh, because Bill, Bill was a program guy. You know, he, he liked to have programs laid out for a year, you know, a year, a year and a half. And uh, so I, I really – I didn't get to know Bill as much as I would like to have. He left almost immediately after I got there. Um, but um, I have nothing but high – high marks for Bill Watts because for me, uh, he actually is the one who gave me my shot in the wrestling business. And, uh, he's the one that brought me in WCW and really looked after me. So how far advanced did you know that, uh, you were going to replace Ron Simmons at the pay-per-view after Ron Simmons had got hurt at, uh, well, you you know, that pay-per-view was, yeah, it was at Asheville. It was Super Bowl. I got to tell you, man, that was, um, you know, even looking back, and I think you guys can see this, anybody who looked at that pay-per-view, that was absolutely the toughest moment of my life. And once again, part of the reason the WCW couldn't compete at the level uh, of the WWF is they did not have the ability to be flexible. If you worked for Vince and you went out there, and, and no matter what, the crowd wanted to take you as a babyface, you know, he'd switch gears in a heartbeat and turn you into a baby face next week on television. You know what I mean? Because in the end, isn't the goal to make money with a character? And, you know, when I went to uh, Asheville, they, they called me at the last minute and said, you know, we want you to play the national anthem and we want you to wrestle as a heel. And I'm like, in fact, I, w- I will never forget this is one of the times Bill Watts stood up for me. And he goes, you guys are retarded, man. You're going to run a guy out there who can legitimately play the national anthem and everybody's going to pop for it. They're going to they're going to love the fact this guy's legit and playing the national anthem in front of them. And then you're going to expect them to go out there and wrestle as a heel. They're going to sit on their hands because they're not going to know what to do. I, I don't care if you're running him against Hogan. And, and Bill said that before that night. And that was a very very tough night for me because that's exactly what happened. I went out there and played the national anthem, and people just if you watch that. If you watch my, that's my introduction to the wrestling world in the big scale, to the big show, and you watch the people, and at first they started kind of going, no, and then all of a sudden you can watch the camera pan through the audience, and people are standing up putting their hands over their hearts going, wow, this guy is legitimately fucking playing the national anthem. And it was really a tough, tough night for me. That's a very tough match for me to watch because it made it incredibly hard because you could have heard a pin drop in the arena because nobody wanted to boo me. You know, they just didn't want to boo a guy who just played the national anthem and done it well, enough to, that they went, God, this guy's legit. And so that was a, that was a tough night for me. But i got to tell you a quick story about that night. I'll never forget this. You know, I'd never met Harley Race, and Harley Race was there. And Chris Benoit, incidentally, was at that show as well. And uh, I went out and played the national anthem. And as I'm walking off the stage, I come back and walk down through the curtain. Harley Race met me at the bottom of the stairs with tears in his eyes. 
and he said, oh, my God, a wrestler with a legit gimmick. And he shook my hand, and he gave me the office when he shook my hand. He didn't, you know, firm shake me. You know, he goes, Max, that was amazing. And Chris was there. The only two people that met me when I, when I walked off the stage that night was Chris and Harley. And I'll never forget that. And, and consequently, after that, Harley and I were always good friends from that moment forward. I, I did the road quite a few times with Harley and just had a blast with him. So uh, that was a really – that was a tough night for me, a really tough night for me. That is, I don't that, understand. That is a, that's amazing. Alex, can, can you swallow that? I mean, you know, they have – you haven't played the national anthem. They don't want a more heel. God, who, whose idea was that? Was it Bitchoff? You, you know, that's what I'll never – you know, I wish I could tell you exactly what the – see, because right there is when Bill Watts had lost his power. That was the mm-hmm. night. I remember Bill Watts saying, you're not – in fact, I remember in the dressing room that night, Bill Watts goes, said to them, you're not running this guy out in the ring and having him play music without a program in mind for him for the next year because you're going to kill the gimmick. And if he goes and plays – I remember Bill saying to them, if he goes out there and plays the national anthem and pulls it off, he's going to be a baby face immediately. And they could not deal with it. And part of the reason, you know, one of the things I faced, and there was a challenge with my gimmick, you guys, and it always was. We talked about this a little bit last time, was since I was, you know, from the time I started, when I went to Memphis in 88, it really, you know, I, I've, had, I've had bookers. I remember Bill Dundee telling me once, how do you think a guy as fat and ugly and as freaky as you could ever get over with the public? Bill Dundee was one of those guys who just believed the baby face was a K&H, B-bar, A, boot-wearing guy, and there was no other choice. You know what I mean? Pink and light blue tights with a pair of B-bar, A, patent leather boots was an ideal, ideal of a baby face. And, you know, I always fought that. I always, to quote a uh, quote from the Bible, I always kicked against the pricks. You know, I never really fit into that mode. That was part of my problem. Well, now it's commonplace for guys that were, you know, that are dark and wear black T-shirts and, you know, have black hair. And, you know, Taker's gimmick, Taker's gimmick was so much different from what I was doing because Taker at that time still didn't represent sort of the heavy metal era because he hadn't come out beyond the Taker image, which was the living dead, so to speak. You know what I mean? Taker was such a phenomenal character. Heavy metal kids could identify with him, but he still wasn't like a heavy metal character. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and that was something I always fought against, and that's exactly why WCW said, you guys are crackheads. There's no way anybody will accept this big freak as a babyface. And that's why, they, that's why they shut it down. So how was life on the road? Uh, coming from Germany and now going on with uh, WCW, how 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 was life on the road in WCW? Oh, it was you know, good God, man! You know, I went from uh, I already you know, life in Memphis. Uh, well, first of all, the Japanese world is pretty tough. The Japanese world and, and living in Japan and doing the Japanese road is 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 an intense progress. You know, they go out on the road for. You know, we'd go out on the road for, you know, a month, five weeks at a time. So I was pretty used to the road in Japan, even though in Japan you always ride in a bus with the Japanese, you know, and it was intense. Then I went to Memphis. In Memphis, it's, you know, all cars, no money, three to 5,000 miles a week in your own car, spending your own gas, you know, kicking your, you know, just beating yourself to death, just trying to even break even, you know what I mean, just to stay afloat. Um, 
Germany is much different because you stay in a place for so long, you really get a chance to, you know, get to know where you live and what you're doing and where the stores are and how to buy food and, you know, and all that. Then WCW was a whole new beast. You know, that's life on the road in the WCW uh, basically meant, you know, full-time on the road, you know, um, and my pay scale was based on a nightly. So the more I worked, uh, the more money I made. If I worked seven nights a week, I got paid for seven nights a week. So for me, you know, it, it was balls to the wall, and you wrestled in every little town and everything you could ever possibly do. So, you know, it was a, it was a big, it was a radical change going to the WCW. Plus, too, I, I mean, I dealt with arrogance and prima donnas before, but, uh, you know, when you get to that level, then there's a level of arrogance at that level that's, that's even higher. So, you know, it was, it, was pretty, it was pretty intense for me and a pretty intense change. But I loved it. You know, it was, a, it was a very, very powerful learning experience in my life. And uh, it was intense, though, I have to say. It, was, it, it required a lot. And I had a car that I got from – I actually still have the car. I have a 1979 Lincoln Town Coupe, a big two-door Lincoln. It was the last year of the big Lincolns, and Marty had uh, blown it up in Memphis. And I, I got it fixed, and I drove it home from Memphis. I put a new motor in it, drove it home from Memphis. And I actually drove it to Atlanta. And then when I was in Atlanta and making money, I rebuilt it, and, and I drove it everywhere. So my car sort of became my uh, trademark, if you will, along with my gimmick. So every time I would show up in a town, they'd see my car, you know. I mean, there was nobody else driving a 79 Lincoln in 1993, you know. So uh, I, I had this, and, and all the boys would, I, you know, I, inevitably I had four or five boys, you know, four, four or five of the boys riding with me as well. But I loved, my, you know, my time in Atlanta. I look back at it now, and, you know, it was very hard. It was a difficult time. But it was uh, the first time I genuinely had made good money in the wrestling business. So, and, and it was an opportunity to run wide open. And it taught me a lot of great lessons in life. Whose yeah. idea was the arm wrestling contest? In the bus, you mean? Uh, no, uh, the Jesse, the Body Ventura, the, the, arm, the one that Vinny uh, Vegas ended up winning. Oh, God. Who knows? <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. You know, once again, you know, if you got somebody who's legit, Rude was there at the time, too. You know, I mean, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, who knows? It was somebody had a great idea, and it was a great idea to set up an angle. And, you know, and I, I, I wish I could give you all the details on that, but I don't remember. Forgive me. Now, at, at this time, uh, WCW was, was making frequent trips to Germany, um, and I know you were on a few of those tours. Um, how, were, how were you received then under the WCW banner by the fans? Did they remember you? Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, you know, I used to tell them uh, in the WCW, you know, that was, that was one of the big problems I had once again over there. They actually let uh, myself and Mick Foley, we did a lot of, of uh, tours and stuff. I actually went over and did a lot of preliminary work because I'd lived in Germany and they knew that I knew fans and spoke enough of the language. I could actually go do interviews and speak a little bit of German. And, you know, it helped out tremendously. And, and Mick's actually pretty fluent in German as well. And, uh, you know, so I did a lot, uh, even though I was on, you know, on the bottom of the card, 
uh, I was one of the guys they sent over there for pre-production stuff. And I went over there and spent, you know, I would spend a week before everybody came going and doing television and radio and kissing babies and, you know, going, I was on a, uh, I was on a show that's the equivalent of the American David Letterman, a guy by the name of Thomas Godshack at the time. And, uh, uh, a, uh, a young lady by the name at the, at the time, a movie was coming out with her and Richard Gere, or had just come out with her and Richard Gere called Breathless, a, a young lady by the name of Valerie Kapritsky. And um, I, she hasn't done much beyond that, but um, she uh, she was on the God Shack show that time. And also, too, I'll never forget this, um, the dude who had, his, who had his dick chopped off. What was his name? Uh Oh, come on, you guys. I know you know oh, the dude. Yeah, John Bobbitt. Wayne, or, yeah, whatever his name Bobbitt. was, John Bobbitt. John Wayne Bobbitt. Yeah. Uh, uh, he, he was on the show that night, too, so I got to meet him as well. And uh, you know, so I did a lot of stuff for the WCW in terms of promotion and you know, talking to and dealing with the German promoters. And, you know, just because it was it was almost like a liaison that, that was German, you know, for them. And so I did a lot. It was great for me. I mean, that part of my German background and what I, the time I'd spent in Germany helped me out a lot in WCW, which is part of the reason I think they hired me, too. Mm. Well, they were trying to expand into that European market. They were. And they did a pretty good job. And I mean, They actually uh, did a really good job. The only, the only downfall is that Mick lost an ear. Other than that, it was successful. Oh, Mick, didn't, Mick never looked at that negatively. From, yeah, the I know. Moment, from the moment that ear came off, he he was pissed as all get out at WCW for not you know for not uh, immediately um, taking advantage of that. He he they never understood. They should have found the fan. They should have found oh, yeah. the fan who recorded it. I mean, there yeah. is a handheld of it out there. Yeah, and, and I mean, it, was it was so filmed. funny. I'll never forget the uh, the the ring announcer uh, Michael. Uh, I'm sorry, my you know it's been a long time. Yeah, Michael you're, Gary Michael Capetta, yeah. Yep. Gary Michael picked the ear up and put it in his pocket and brought it back <laughs> to the dressing room. Have you seen the footage, Max? I haven't. Okay, we'll see Is what it we on can YouTube? do about that. Uh, I don't know. It may be. It may be, I'll but we'll to, see what we can do about uh, getting it I'll on. Have check, um, I'll have to check it out. Well, before we go any further, uh, we're going to get back to this, uh, this trivia game. Um, I am giving away a few SoCal Pro DVDs from our sponsors, uh, WrestleWarehouse.com. The question is, what was the first WWF title that Chris Benoit ever held? And call in at area code 347-215-7946. Okay. Now, how did you get hooked up with, with Cactus Jack as a tag team partner? You know, they, they actually came to me. Uh, you know, I think they were looking for something to do with Nick. And... Uh, they were looking for something to do with me, and and I think somebody in the in the back room said, you know, what a great combination. You know, maybe it was Mick himself. I don't know, um, but uh, it just. I remember just one day they came to me and said, we're going to start running you and Mick as tag team partners, and I I was excited because I'd always loved Mick and thought the world of him, and he followed me in Memphis, and uh, we had mutual friends in Memphis in the Memphis territory. And uh, so I always got along really, really good with Mick, and uh, I was I was ecstatic. So it was easy for me to go, good man. I'm I, this is a shot for me. Plus Mick was pretty high up, you know. He he was pretty high up on the card, and I figured this was a great opportunity for me to expand my horizons. Now, 
coming up in the New Japan Dojo, you you understand the true definition of being snug, stiff. Now, compare the guys hitting you in the dojo to how stiff the Nasty Boys were. I know they were brutal. You know, the Nasty Boys, you know, I I think, you know, when you look at what, if I, if I was to look back at my mistakes in the wrestling business, one of my biggest, and I don't, I'm not going to classify it as a mistake. I'm going to classify it as something I always felt like I could never forget. You know, one of the things Red Bastine taught me was, you know, don't ever look down on a jabroni. Don't ever think that a jabroni is is somebody that you can that you can a job guy that you can you can look down on him because it is a great jabroni that makes somebody that's on top look like a million bucks. Exactly. And so the other thing I found is I hated sitting in a fucking dressing room with the prima donnas because all they did was sit in there and talk about, you know, their own careers and how they were going to better themselves, which was part of my big problem. My ego wasn't uh, – I'm not going to say I didn't have a big ego, but I didn't, I didn't like sitting in the dressing room with those guys. I never felt comfortable in the dressing room with those people because, to me, uh, I, still, I still felt uh, somewhat humbled that the fans, without the fans, you're nothing. You know, you can, you can, you can act like you're a superstar all you want to. Just because people put you on TV every week doesn't mean you're over. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I always, I always found it uh, incredibly refreshing to sit in the job guys' room. I always would sit with the guys that were on the underside of the card because, first of all, there was no tension in that dressing room. The boys were laughing. And um, so I always sit in there with them. And I watched, before I ever worked with the Nasty Boys once, I watched the four fucking kids come back there beat to shit from those guys. Them and Vader, you know, they had no concern about anybody else's body. They, they, because they were just the stiffest. And what the shitty, the funny part about is, this is, is you talk to anybody that worked with the Nasty Boys, is their shit was stiff and it looked horrible. I mean, it would have been fine if their shit looked like it was killing you. But, you know, they'd throw a punch, and it looked like they were a nine-year-old girl throwing a softball, for Christ's sake, and they'd almost tear your head off. They literally, a couple of times, knocked me unconscious with bad punches. And, uh, you know, they were, they were horrible. And I made a commitment to myself. When I first, after sitting in the, the dressing room with the, with the job guys for, you know, the times that I had sat in there with them and watched them, come back, you know, tore up. And, I mean, there were there were quite a few serious injuries. Shoulders tore up, knees tore up. You know, I made a commitment to myself that there, I wasn't going to let those guys do that to me. And then I found myself letting them do it to me, which is part of the reason I stood up to both of them. You know, I mean, even though they, they got their licks in, in the end, they you know, they are the nasty boys and they are what they are. But um, they were just stiff and miserable to work with. They were never – it was never a night off working with the nasty boys. Never. Never. All right, Max, uh, since, since we're on the topic of uh, job guys I have on the line, my personal favorite job guy ever, Mr. Buddy Wayne, welcome to Rubber Guard Radio. How you doing, buddy? Good. How are you doing? Going? The one and the only, Buddy Wayne. That's right, Max. What are you up to? <laughs> well, there is a blast from the past right there, my brother. How, how's it going? I am doing fantastic, man. How about you? Good, good. Are you still in Utah? No, I'm in Twin Falls, Idaho. Actually, are you really? I am. I am. I'm. I'm. I'm divorced and remarried, and I live in Twin Falls, Idaho, with wow, my new good wife. Good for you. Good for yeah, you, man. Yeah, 
I'm 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 in a great place. In fact, I'm about to move to Canada. You gotta be kidding. Right, me. Good for you, eh? Yeah, what I'm part? pretty excited about that, eh? That's a great place to learn a boot, you know, eh? <laughs> Bunny, what what are you doing? Are you still are you still in the business? You still Yeah, yeah. Are, yeah, are you really? We're, I I got a school here. Um I just work shows on the weekends, but I got a bunch of students and uh and that's it, Maxie. That's it. I, I want to tell you story. BuddyWayne.net. BuddyWayne.net. Yeah, BuddyWayneFucking.net. <laughs> Get trained Max, by the I got, this, I got this good story, though. There was uh, I was working this local guy show in Tacoma, Washington here probably, oh, man, I'm, I'm going to guess probably like six years ago. And, and the promoter goes, Max Payne just called me. And I said, Max Payne? And he goes, yeah, he said he's living here now. And he wants to see how getting booked on the show. I said, you got his number? And he goes, no, he wouldn't leave a number. And, and he still show up tonight. So I'm like thinking, wow, Max moved to, to Washington. What the hell? The guy never showed up. There's an imposter, Max Payne. I remember that. You know there what I'm talking an, about? There, wa- there was an imposter, Max Payne. I, I guess he's still working or he's still around or something. But now he changed. He, 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 he spelled his name like you. And then he changed it to like four X's or something, or something. He, he, he's the same size as you, the exact same size. That he grew the hair out, everything. Just didn't really look like you in the face. But if you didn't know, if 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 you didn't know, you could get, maybe get fooled, you know. Really? Yeah. So I was, I, la- I was like, holy god. Uh, you know, uh, it's funny. My wife was just looking on the internet just the other night, and now there's a Maxine Payne. No, you got to be kidding me. There's a female wrestler named Maxine Payne. Yeah, so that's happened to me quite a few times in my career. Huh. Tremendous. Well, now now that I have you two former WCW guys on, let's uh, talk about the the atmosphere in the locker room. Um, Max, you said that you hung out with with the underneath guys, and obviously, buddy, you were an underneath guy. Um, How did they, from your end, buddy, how did the, the, the higher tier guys treat you? I uh, just, I mean, if it, it, I, I mean, if you could work, I guess it, they, you're all right. But I mean, Max, you know, like a center stage, there was two dressing rooms, and yeah. uh, where did I always come to, buddy? Yeah, you, you always over in the the Java dressing room. Always, and, man. And I, I always hung yeah. out with you guys, man. It was always cool, you know, cool, you know, you would be over there, like, um, uh, what's the guy, Patriot. You know, nice guys and stuff, but uh, it was just kind of a separation. But if you could work, you were all right. You were—I mean, there was no, they never. I, I never personally got beat up, or or nobody hit me or nothing like that. But I saw I saw like Vader and those guys. I saw guys beat the shit out of people. No, but but in fairness to Buddy, Buddy was is a great worker, man. You know, he's he's somebody that, despite his you know what he lacks in stature, he makes up for it heart, and he's one of those guys that the the top guys would know they couldn't fuck with. You know. Buddy's just one of those guys that you know. He because of my amateur background. Room. Yeah, absolutely. And Buddy was <laughs> Buddy's just one of those. <laughs> Buddy's just one of those guys that didn't matter. He just you know he he had an attitude that just there was no that there was no way he was going to let somebody push him around. Unfortunately, and Buddy knows this. There's a lot of guys that um, you know they they would do anything. They would do anything yeah. to be on TV and be in the business. So I don't yeah. care how bad somebody hurt them; they'd never, they'd never complain. 
No, you know, they, no. they they come back to the dressing room beat up and, and, you know, shoulder tore up or whatever and never complain. You know, I have a classic story about this one. I met, buddy, you may have been there. We were doing TV and uh, I think it was either Gainesville or someplace. I can't remember. We were doing a television. And um, this kid said, you know, Max, give me the clothesline before you do the painkiller. I do a 360. And I said, oh, that's perfect. And I said, as you come up from that, that, that 360, I'll put the painkiller on you, and it'll be over, right? So the guy, we go out there, and, we, you know, we'd gone through our match. We went out there, did the match, man. And the kid, I give him the clothesline. He takes the bump, and he takes a bad bump, and he dislocated oh. his shoulder, right? Oh, so yeah. he's selling his shoulder, but I didn't know he was hurt and yeah. put the painkiller on that shoulder and put yeah. it back in. He dislocated oh, cool. his shoulder doing the bump, <laughs> and I put the shoulder back in, putting the painkiller on the kid, and we got out of the ring, and I, I tell you, honestly, that was one of those nights where I, 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 bet, I said to him, I said, for the love of Christ, man, why didn't you roll out of the ring? Why didn't you take yeah. a count out? He goes, I, I, I was afraid, Max. I didn't know what to do. And I said, Jesus, so you let me put a goddamn painkiller on you? What are you thinking? <laughs> you know what I mean? It was one of those moments in time. I said, man, I would have never in a million years done that. I would have just rolled you over after that bit and covered you. You know what I mean? <laughs> but they, they, we, we couldn't get the message relayed, and I didn't realize it. And, oh, I felt so bad. But actually, I think it ended up helping him because it did put his shoulder back in. So his trip to the hospital wasn't near as bad as it could have been. But you were one of those guys that never hurt nobody. You know what I mean? I tried, like, like a, well, the only one I did hurt to this day believes I did it on purpose, which if that's what he wants oh, to I believe, know. that's fine. That. You know, I mean, I don't give a shit about him, but everybody else, I tried. I went, In fact, Z-Man's the one that got me my job in the w, WCW because they put me out with him on my first television, um, and uh, – I put the painkiller on, and he sold that goddamn painkiller clear into the dressing room. And when he got in the dressing room, I went, oh, fuck, I heard him. And he I went in there, and he, and he put his arms around me and, and said, Max, that was the easiest match I've ever wrestled in my life. Thank you, brother. Yeah. And yeah. everybody in the dressing room went, holy fuck, the guy's not going to kill everybody. You know, it was one of those moments where, and I've, I've never forgotten I've never forgotten Tommy for that man. It was it was brilliant. It was a it was a beautiful time. And incidentally, he and I have been friends to this day. I mean, and our yeah. friends, I consider him a friend for life. You know. Good. Mm-hmm. So, buddy, you're running. Friend. Buddy, oh, you're running ahead. shows. <clears throat> buddy, you're running that? shows still. Uh, no, just, well, just a wrestling school, and I run. I, I got some sold shows. Like I ran some. I ran um, um, Mexico against China. Um, they they wanted like a lucha show um, outdoors at the at the stadium, so I you know stuff like that. But just I'll rent the ring out. I'll uh, I'll um, I run the school. So you're, in, you're in the Northwest, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm still up here. Still uh, same place I've always been. Everett, Washington. Really? Well, like I like I said, when I moved to Canada, I'll, I'll look you up, brother. We'll hook up and because uh, I'll sure. just be a couple hours. I'll be a couple hours away from you. Is all, man. Yeah, for sure. God, for sure, Max. When are you moving to Canada, Max? Well, it depends. You know, I'm I'm trying to get there as soon as possible. I'm in the middle of building a recording studio right now, and so I don't. You know, I've got a couple three feelers in the in the in the works, and I'm waiting for a company to call me back and give me some definitive answers. You know, I hope within the next couple of months I'm on my way to Canada. That would be my goal. Before winter hits, I'd like to be up there and you know, sort of settled in. So um, I would hope within the next couple of months I'll be up there. 
Okay, we, we were talking about Cactus Jack losing his ear, and the footage of this has been posted in the comments section of my MySpace, myspace.com backslash rubberguardradio. Uh, go check it out. You'll see uh, Mr. Foley lose his ear in Germany. So, uh, Max, when you get off the air, check it out, brother. I posted it up I, I will. you. And we, were all on the curtain for, we were all on the curtain for that one, I guarantee you. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No doubt, no doubt. All right, buddy, any other... Uh, any other stories you you need to you need to share here? We, we, we no, that was it. it. I just Matt. I Matt. have a great. I'm not gonna let Buddy go without telling the most infamous story at all of all with Buddy. Oh, here we go. <laughs> I ran a wrestling. I ran a wrestling. You know where I'm going, don't you? Uh, you don't have a beer bottle. <laughs> <laughs> we were we ran a wrestling promotion in Utah. It was it was in the early nineties. It was my uh, I, I think I told you guys I ran my mm-hmm. own promotion in between Japan and uh, when I went to Germany, and uh, so I ran a promotion and Buddy I hooked up with Buddy through uh, was it was it through uh, was it through Rip or was it through uh, a Bill Buddy Anderson? Rose and, I think Buddy. Might have been through Rip, but but Buddy Rose and Colonel yeah. Colonel yeah. Beers we were there. Colonel the Beers, they all came, and we had we actually had a really good time. It was a pretty good Great little night. territory. And if we would have uh, if we would have really stuck it out, I think we'd have, we'd still have a little territory there today. Vince actually did a really good job of trying to to kick the shit out of that little territory. But um, yeah. we uh we had a, we had a promotion and we were getting ready to run. And one night we came back to the hotel and uh, Buddy Rose. And uh, Buddy would, Buddy Wayne was there, and I don't remember. I think uh, Dash was there, Dash Riprock, and I think the Colonel Her- was the Colonel there that night too. Yeah, Colonel and Buddy were in the, in the room together. So uh, Buddy is uh, laying on the bed, and uh, Buddy has this. Uh, is Buddy still alive, Buddy? Yeah, Buddy Rose. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. So Buddy has this affinity of showing you his 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 uh, backside, and he doesn't just like to show it to you. He likes to give you a a full glimpse and quite honestly buddy's behind is not the most beautiful behind in the world no but but he he likes to show you the entire view if you know what i mean he would grab the cheeks and pull it apart and and just think we were yeah we that came that was true and uh so we were sitting there and buddy shows us his behind and we're all like throwing up and and ridiculous and we just bought like a case of tall boys or a couple cases of uh, long neck budweisers yeah. and uh, um buddy was at the end of the bed and he had secretly opened a long neck beer and had his thumb over it and had shaken it and had the pressure contained underneath his thumb and he said to buddy buddy show us your show us your brown eye again but it, you know, of course, he wasn't just going to give it up that easy. And finally, Buddy talked. Buddy Wayne talked to him into saying, "Come on, just show us your brown eye one more time, and I'll quit bugging you. I swear to God, I'll never bug you again about that." <laughs> and Buddy reeled off and pulled his legs up in the air and reached down and grabbed his cheeks. And I have to say, Buddy Wayne's aim at that point in time was absolutely perfect, <laughs> and it was like sticking a milk. A milker on an udder. When he hit Buddy's asshole with that long neck beer, that beer sucked straight into his ass up to the bottom of the neck, and then shot out because the beer blew up in his butt. And had blue beer all over the bed, and I will never forget Buddy's reaction. I don't think Buddy Rose has moved so fast in his entire no. life, and the whole time he was jumping around the room. 
beer is shooting out of his ass. And we all just, it was one of those great moments in wrestling that, you know, you just, it could not have been more perfect. When, when Buddy Wayne hit that beer in his ass, it just, the whole neck of the beer bottle went straight to the wide part and, and then finally blew out from the pressure. And it was, it was fantastic. A great moment. And Buddy Wayne at that point in time was absolutely a legend uh, with me forever. Three weeks ago, I worked a show with Colonel LeBeers, and, uh, and Colonel brought the story up. Pretty really? With Max Payne, and, uh, I, and I said, oh, God, he goes, i got to tell it. And he told the story, and uh, we were dying. God, it was funny just remembered it again. Oh, it was great. Buddy, Buddy's very good at being a, a, a very cool, very cool guy. So that's a, that's a great moment in wrestling history in a small territory. Yep. No, Max. I just wanted to call in. I just wanted to say hey, and and I hadn't heard from you in a long time. And I, I think the last I, I talked to uh, um, Brian Armstrong was the last time I when he was with New York, and I'd asked about you, and he said you were back in in Utah. But this was, this was you know seven years ago. Years? Yeah. That was been years ago, man. Yeah. yeah, and and he said, oh, he's back home, and, well, and, I, and but I always remember, because I, when I was there, everybody got rooms, and you go, come stay at my house. And I was like, God, and I knew you had the kids and the wife, and I'm like, man, I'm putting this guy out, and I felt, man, he ain't going to like it. And it was the best time of my life. It was a good time, you, you were playing the guitar, and remember? Yep, of course, man. You playing the guitar, and, and, and uh, we go to that, we went to this pizza place, and, and, uh, we ordered like the extra large family pizza, and the, and and, Ma- and Max goes, "I hope that's enough." And the guy goes, "If you can finish this, I'll give you another one for free." We walked right up to Max's car in the parking lot, sat in front of the store, and and Max finished the thing, and the guy gave us another one for free. <laughs> well, I like that. Since I connected you you both on the show, when I got off the air, I'm gonna gonna give each of you guys a phone call and and I'll exchange your phone numbers so you guys can you know keep in touch. For sure, uh, guys, guys need absolutely. to keep in touch nowadays. Yeah, um, absolutely, man. Hey, buddy, buddy I can tune in, brother. It was. Oh no! Yeah. Thanks for thanks for letting me thanks for for uh, for letting me on here, Max. I miss you, man. You were you were uh, one of the bright spot. You know, a fun guy and just had fun and and uh, man, for being so big, what a great worker. You know, I always I always said that. So. That's a huge compliment coming from you, buddy, man. I appreciate no. that, brother. Thank you so much. And we'll hook up, for sure. When you get to Canada. Absolutely, or... man. Okay, I'm coming bro. that way, brother. I promise you. Okay. Once again, BuddyWayne.net. If you want to get trained properly, Buddy will do it for you. If you're anywhere near 400, 500 miles near the Seattle area, I suggest moving. Uh, buddy has connections. Uh, he just sent one of his boys a couple months ago to Ohio Valley Wrestling. Uh, Buddy Wayne's no joke, and I wouldn't put him over if I didn't, oh, thanks, you know, if I didn't, you know, like him or enjoy his work or his training. Uh, Buddy, thanks for calling thanks, in, Tom. dude. You added thanks, you guys. to the show. Have, Alex, thank you. Nice. Great talking to you. Are you? Good you talking to you, me, buddy. Love All you, right, buddy. Bro. Take care. Peace. Awesome. Well, Max, you know, you, you brought giving? up that, that story about. Training, about... Brother. Sorry, brought up that. What was that? You brought up that story about. Okay. Give me just a sec. Max, that was my gift to you. Thank, Thank you, for you so on the show. much, that was, man. That was my gift, brother. I, I, hey, that's I, a very I good gift, man. So. Oh, that's awesome, man. I, I, I'm, not in t- I'm not in touch with hardly anybody in the business, and it's an absolute pleasure to talk to Buddy because he, he was definitely a bright spot. Um, he was a tremendous asset. He was a lot of help, and uh, I was still very green, you know, um, 
and uh, he was he always was like I said he's you know he's the reason. Whenever I did shows, man, I would, like I said, I would much rather hang out in the under guy room just because of guys like Buddy. You know, I, I, I felt more comfortable. There was no ego. Those guys were there to do their job, and I always appreciated that. And Buddy Wayne was is a classic example, a tremendous worker, uh, a great uh, human being. And he's got one, I think it's him that's got one hell of a foot fetish, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> no comment. I'm going to gate that. But now, now when you move out to Canada, um, <laughs> are, you, are you moving to the West Coast? Well, I think I'm going to be in Vancouver. So, yeah, I'll be right on the West Coast, now, man. So Now, would you be willing to strap on the boots one more time to get it on with Buddy? You know what, dude? I, I'll be honest with you, man. I am uh, one of those guys. I've made a commitment in my life. I'm never going back to the wrestling business. You know, there's so many fucking guys who keep putting their boots on, and you know what? Um, I I just couldn't do it. I, I would feel like I was raping myself. Now, does that mean I wouldn't go help him train guys, teach him some things about the business, be somebody there to you know to talk to him about the business? But I'm never I'm never tying up tying on a pair of boots again, bro. I, I have okay. to be honest with you and say, you know what? Uh, I just don't. I, I mean, honestly, Vince could call me tomorrow and say, I'm going to give you the biggest push of your life, which, incidentally, Vince isn't going to do that, but he could call <laughs> me tomorrow and say, I'm going to give you the biggest push of your life, come and be in New York. And I, as much as I'd love to gain notoriety through that and, and the potential that that would, that would be for me, I couldn't go back to the wrestling business. I couldn't do it, man. Well, last, so, month, um, last month at Buddy Wayne's, uh, up there, they were running a show up in Tulalip, Washington, and they brought in the Honky Tonk Man for a seminar. Would you uh, Would you do a seminar for for young kids? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, Tremendous. of course, man. Tremendous! Absolutely. Okay, yeah. we'll, do is we'll, we'll make a note and we'll see what we can do with that. I'll, I'll talk to Buddy and we can put uh, put two and two together. Because yeah, if, Max, I'm, if I'm you up there, have enough knowledge, easy. brother. You have enough knowledge just to just to sit and talk to these kids. Now that I would do, I've always thought that, you know, just to teach and talk and, you know, and, and give them advice and, and let them know, uh, you know, the one thing I think that you need to know about the wrestling business, especially young guys is, you know, and I've said this, I think I said this to you the last time and I'm going to say it again is, you know, the art of the wrestling business seems to have real is really uh, pretty, it's pretty elusive right now. And I think that's one of the big problems. You know, I think it was you. Somebody asked me the other day that they read me a quote from Kevin Nash that the, the big problem in the wrestling business today is the ultimate fighting championships and the UFC and those guys and, you know, full contact karate shit. And, you know, I disagree with that. I think the problem in the wrestling business today is really quite simple. Vince has eliminated all of the training grounds for young wrestlers. And when you eliminate that training ground, and then not only that, you know, all of the old-timers, unfortunately, they're not just retiring. The way they retire in the wrestling business is they die. So all that incredible knowledge of guys like, you know, Rick Rude, just for a classic example, you know, as sad as it is what Chris Benoit did, you know, the plethora of knowledge a guy like that brings to the table, especially to impart to a young guy for that knowledge to be gone, completely gone, it's a shame because 
the art of the wrestling business is the reason the business is down. And I think Vince would, he may not admit it freely, but the truth of the matter is, is the art of understanding a match and understanding how to control a crowd, that's the part that just, you know, it's all about muscle heads and bodies right now, and the art of the business seems to be gone. In fact, I've said before, I'd love to start a wrestling organization where, it didn't even have wrestling matches in it. All you ever saw was stills of the wrestling matches. And every time you started to get ready to go to a wrestling match, instead of going to the match, you went to a commercial. When you come back, the, the match was finished, you know. So the whole thing is just a shtick leading up to the match because that's about where it's at right now. You know what I mean? The art of those big, long programs and the great, you know, era of, you know, when Hogan was there and he had these fantastic heels like Terry Funk and, and uh, Macho Man and these great workers to lead him through these incredible matches, that, that era is so evasive and so elusive that I think that's what's wrong with the wrestling business. And the reason that is is because there's no territories where you can go to like I did, go to Memphis and starve for a couple of years, not get noticed, and just go out there and pound the pavement every day and learn the business and try to figure out how to make a crowd. You know, Red Bastine taught me it had a great motto. He said, I don't care where I was on the card. My intent was that when you left the building, you could leave right after I my match. If I was first on the card, you could leave right after my match and feel like you got your money's worth at that night at the, at the event center, wherever you were. And I think that's, I think that's a, a lost mentality. I think it's really gone away. And the, the, the trick for the wrestling business is to figure out how to get that back, to give guys, you know, a place to learn this business and spend, you know, uh, Dick Murdoch told me, I think I told you this story the last time, Dick Murdoch said something to me that was amazing. He said, you know, it takes you 10 years before you finally understand the wrestling business. And when I was young, I farted on him and thought, yeah, you're full of shit. You're full of shit, man. There's no way. I'm I'm only been in the business for three years, and I know everything about it. Well, you learn from guys like that. You learn after being humbled that that's just not the truth, you know. And um, it's just one of those things that, you know, you learn from a guy like that that he's right and he really he really got it and he understood that it takes you ten years to understand not the physical shit. Hell, what guy can't figure out an international right out of the gate? What guy can't go out there and do high spots and fly off the top ropes and do all that shit? Well, you know what? That doesn't mean anything if it's not attached to a great story. And the only way to learn that story is to pound it in day in and day out from the beginning of your career to be married to a veteran that knows how to teach you how to do that so you learn how to feel it first and foremost. And that's what the wrestling business is suffering from, in my opinion. Well, you, you brought up a, a real good point. Um, and I was just talking to a friend about it today, is that WBS roster in the early 90s, it, it was just unbelievable that Kurt Henning oh, wasn't it? was a guy yeah. who was just a mid, uh, he was basically almost like a mid-card attraction. Mid, I mean, it was mid, amazing. Mid- and he was he was unreal, and the guys yeah. on underneath were unreal, and they just had the most amazing talent roster ever. Yeah, I was and so I, lucky. I got I got to spend some time with Kurt, and Kurt and I ended up being really good friends. And he was a huge. There's another classic example. What a huge loss to the wrestling business. And the reason is, is Christ, the guy grew up in the wrestling business. The guy grew up with tights on, for God's sakes. How many other guys in the world are you know kids? 
who grew up in the wrestling business, you know what I mean? And, and have the, you know, I mean, by the time Kurt was 20, you know, he had 15 years of wrestling experience because he'd been, you know, his dad, it, he, he, that's all he ever wanted to be, you know, and that, that shit, that's a, that's a huge loss to the wrestling business. And there isn't a ton of those guys left out there. I mean, guys like Buddy Wayne, you know, I mean, he's, he's a classic example of they're few and far between. I mean, I got a, I got a friend down in Atlanta, uh, Jody Hamilton and Jody's got a great school down there. And, you know, those are the kinds of schools you got to go to, but hell, once you're done with the school shit, that's just getting your, that's just getting your, your appetite wet. You know what I mean? Now you got to go out and try and figure out how to go up and down that highway and learn how to do that. And you've got to do it every freaking night for, you know, four and five years. That's why I was so lucky. I mean, Japan taught me one thing. Then I came home and started my own organization. And then, you know, I did my, I, I did Memphis for a year and that taught me so much. I worked with some great guys, Gary Young, Brickhouse Brown, met Kurt Henning, worked with Lawler, you know, worked with just a number of fantastic people, you know, in, in Mid-South Wrestling. And, and then, and then to go to Germany and work with greats like, you know, Tony St. Clair and Chris Benoit and, and the Colonel and, and all the guys that were over Dave Taylor and Fit Finley. I mean, Fit Finley alone. I mean, if the WWF could clone Fit Finley and had six guys like Fit Finley, I guarantee you their business would be a completely different business because Fit's one of those guys who just fucking gets it and has always got it. And you learn from a guy like that. If you've got any brains at all, when you meet a guy like Fit Finley, you keep your mouth shut and you listen and you watch a guy like that, a master at work. And those guys are few and far between anymore. And that's, that's a sad state for the business. And until the business figures out how to fix that, and honestly, you guys, the, the sad part about that is, you know, you're talking probably a generation before that, that can really change. But then again, it's got to be Vince who wants to change it and is willing to let a small territory try to succeed so that can happen. And he's never going to do that because that would end his world domination. So he's, I, I said years ago when WCW went under, and I think you guys could go on the Internet and find my interviews, when the WCW went in under, I quoted Star Trek. One of my favorite uh, Star Treks is when Spock has to fight Captain Kirk for, for his woman on Vulcan. I don't know if you remember this episode. It's one of my favorites, man. And it's so that, uh, that his woman is hoping that Spock will die so she can fall in love with his other dude on, on Vulcan. And after he's killed Captain Kirk, or so he thinks, he's killed Captain Kirk, he says uh, to this other guy, I think his name was Speck or something, something close to Spock, and he kind of looked like Spock, he says, you may find that having something and wanting something are two completely different things. And that's the danger Vince has ran, and I don't think he realizes it until now, that just putting a body out there, you know, if you put two green guys out there with bodies, you're going to bore a crowd to death. I don't care how much you don't think they are, unless they're spectacular guys and have ability, like, for example, The Rock. But The Rock was so unique because The Rock grew up in wrestling. He knew because his dad was Rocky Johnson. So with I that in mind. I The Rock in the Cow Palace, Max. Absolutely. I sat you know, and, his, yeah, him and his mother in the Cow and Palace. So, and that's the danger that the, the, the wrestling business is facing. Mm-hmm. Well, now we're going to uh, continue the trivia game. Um, we'll give away a couple SoCal Pro DVDs courtesy of WrestleWarehouse.com and the complete, the complete archive of Rubber Guard Radio. If you can answer this question, what was the first WWF title that Chris Benoit ever held? 
this isn't exactly an easy one, so it's uh I guess you would call it a trick question, but uh Max, do you have any idea? For some reason I I I think it's I, I don't know why. I mean my first my first thought is the internet the intercontinental, but I don't think that was it. For some reason I thought it was like a junior title of some kind. Mm. I don't there know. I, I I can honestly tell you I don't know, but I think it was like the junior heavyweight belt or something like that. Yeah. Well, since since this is my third time asking the question, we'll just give the answer on the air. We'll give away DVDs next time. Yes, you're right. He won the WWF light heavyweight title in Mexico. He defeated Viano Vol- Three, and I, that program in 1991 was just amazing. And and it ended up with Viano regaining the belt and Benoit losing his mask in a five star match. Uh, Meltzer gave it five, and it was just a damn good match. That, oh, that's Benoit was shit. amazing. Yeah, that well, Benoit. Let's, let's, uh, let's talk about Chris. Um, okay. Did you ever see this happening? Was you know, this? it's really, it's really. You know, I was, I, I've been surprised up till now that the press has never contacted me because I, I can honestly say I don't. I mean, I'm, this isn't to brag. Certainly, this is just to speak matter of factly. I don't think there's anybody that knew Chris Benoit on a personal level more than I did. I mean, I lived with the guy mano a mano in a, in a Japanese dojo for five months nonstop and then was with him for another half a year beyond that and then was with him continuously for the next couple of years after that whenever I would go back to, to New Japan Pro Wrestling. And I have to say, and I, I listen, first and foremost, before I say anything, um, what he did was atrocious. The fact, you know, I mean, even if he just killed his wife, that doesn't make any excuse for Christ's sake to divorce her and move on. But to kill his kid, there's there's no excuse for that atrocity. That's that's horror at a level that I don't think any of us can understand because I got kids and I can't even begin to imagine where your mind must be to, to go there. But I have to say that when I, when I think back of all the people um, in the wrestling business, that uh, had a huge impact on my life that um, was, I would genuinely consider a friend that if he was alive today and I called him and said, Chris, what's going on? Uh, Even if he he had to kill himself and he was sitting in a penitentiary and I could go see him and say, dude, what the fuck? Um, I loved Chris Benoit. I mean, obviously I have a completely different mixed feeling about him because of the atrocity that he perpetuated against his family. But to answer your question, not even remotely did I ever see that. Chris Chris was a genuine friend to me in ways that so many people would only hope to have a friend like Chris. Chris would, uh, whenever he, when I finally moved to Atlanta, whenever Chris would come to town, he was so funny. I would always know it was him because he would call me, and he wouldn't say anything on the answering machine. He'd play like ACDC back in black. Or he'd play Highway to Hell or something like that on the answering machine. And so I would know it was him, and so I would just call him and say, look, you son of a bitch, can't you just leave your name and number like everybody else? And he'd go, what impact does that have? He goes, you know, it's me, you know. I mean, so Chris Chris and I were just, you know, I, we had we had a blood relationship in a sense that I don't think anybody else could ever share it. I mean, I, I say this to people now looking back. We ran the temple stairs together, and I don't even know how to explain how difficult that is. The Japanese temples are set up very interestingly. The stairs in the Japanese temples are such that 
you can't, in order to take one full stride up those stairs, you had to stretch unbelievably. If not, you had to double step to get up those stairs, and it was incredibly difficult. And Chris and I, man, uh, blackout, you know, several mornings, we'd get up in the dojo, and he'd go, come on, you guys are going with me. And they'd separate us from the group, and they'd take us to the Shinto temple, and we'd run the stairs. And I'm telling you, for the first week, actually it was probably about the first month, Chris and I was in the Japanese dojo, we used to toss a coin to see who was going to go down and get food because our legs were so sore from doing Hindu squats and running the Japanese temple steps that it was it was un. Believable. I mean, and, and and then we'd play games on each other. You know, we'd we'd walk in and poke each other in the thighs and go, "Is it sore there? Does that hurt?" You know, and uh, we actually, I still have the scar, and I'd, I'd love to show it to you. We had a pain contest one time. We were so bored, all the Japanese had left and gone to Saipan on vacation, and left us in the dojo by ourselves. And we were we were going stark raving mad, and we were sitting on the bed one day, sitting there in our shorts. And Chris loved this cold spray shit they have. That if you got an injury, they 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 quickly freeze your mm-hmm. your injury. And we had a pain contest one day, and uh, it was unbelievable. We the goal was that we would spray that shit on each other until one of us gave up. I hate to say it, I won the contest, but I have a scar the size of a quarter where my skin got frostbite and died. Both of us had a scab on our calves for like, on our shins for like two months where the skin had completely died from freaking uh, frostbite. And uh, needless to say, we never did the cold or the uh, pain contest ever again. But Chris, I never saw it. I mean, and I was so tore up when I heard about it because it really seemed in my mind to defy the character of Chris Benoit. And I, to this day, I'm incredibly sad. What he did was unbelievably beyond wrong. That goes without saying. And I, I can only imagine um, not only the pain. Let's talk about the victims first, his wife and his child. I mean, their pain and their suffering must have been horrendous. But to know Chris, what he went through, I, I can't begin to understand it. I can only feel sorry for all of them. Well, Max, one, one, first off, I would like to give your opinion. Hold on just a sec, Alex. Max, I'm sorry for putting you on the spot with the question, but, you know, it, it, considering your, your past with Chris, I had to bring it up. Um, if, I, if I didn't, I wouldn't be doing my job, and I'm sorry for putting you on the spot. You know what? I, honestly, you're the first guy that has, and you know what? Um, thank you. I, I, I've, I've okay. wanted to get it off my chest for a long time because, you know what, Chris – was obviously that, that that's a monster move. There's no way around it. What he did, the way to go out of his life, somebody who was such legendary status, I'm so sad. I can't even begin to understand the pain that he must have been feeling in his mind and what he was going through. That is absolutely not an excuse. That is absolutely no justification for what he did to his family. But, I, you know what, in this moment in time, I'm going to have to take a Christ-like attitude and say, I I can't judge him. I didn't walk in his shoes. And you know what, There's he he has to deal with that for eternity on his own. Okay. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick call. We have on the air Ed in San Antonio. Uh, Ed has a question for you, Max. What's up, Ed? Go ahead. Um, Max, uh, it's an honor to talk to you, first of all. And uh I remember uh, years ago you were on uh, Dave Meltzer's Wrestling Observer Live, 
And you were telling everybody to go to your website to check out a preview for like a home video that you made that, that you might be releasing. And I remember I yeah. actually even watched it. And I was wondering how come you never actually released it or is there any plans to still do that in the future? No, oh, it's funny you'd bring that up because I'm kind of faced in a situation right now. Um, there, As you guys know, there's some serious shit going down in the WWF right now. And, uh, you know, I've always said and I've always heard that it's going to take somebody who's been in the wrestling business, um, who's now outside the wrestling business, to evoke some kind of change. And I've said this over and over and over again. And part of the reason I'm not in the wrestling business is because I have been one of the front guys who's always said that in order for the wrestling business to change and in order for Vince McMahon to lose his control, the last bastion of entertainment that doesn't have a union is the wrestling business. The wrestlers, just like professional actors in the early 1900s, need somebody to protect them from themselves because they can't do it. They don't have objective mentality, just like football players, you know. Football players, until they had a union, they'd go out there and they'd get killed and were making shit money. Nobody cared about them. You listen to the old-timers that are still alive, talk on television, and there's nobody out there to protect them. So, to be honest with you, when it comes to my film, I'm at a crossroads in that, you know what, there may be an opportunity for me maybe to help the wrestling business change, and maybe it's by, you know, putting that movie forth to Congress and saying, you know what, here's a true picture. Here's a true picture of what the wrestling business is really like, because nobody stopped me from, from shooting video, and four of the guys in the video are dead. So, you know what, I, I'm going to have to just claim, for right now, I'm going to let it be, um, but we'll see what happens, uh, and we'll see how much of the atrocity I can deal with before I actually sit before Congress and say, you know what, here's another picture nobody's ever seen before. So, you know, I would imagine that at some point in the future this movie will be seen. Um, I can't make any promises, but the truth of the matter is um, I, I can't give you definitive answers and details, but you know what, man, uh, like I said, if it could help change something that, that doesn't want to change, maybe that's what will help do it. Maybe I'm the guy to help. I don't know. But because I'm never going back to the business, I'm, ne I'm committed to never having to be a wrestler again, and maybe somehow I could make, some, make a difference in the world by helping professional wrestling get a union. And i got to say from the bottom of my heart, there's never been an organization that needs a union worse, and here's why. Vince Mc you can't blame Vince McMahon in a capitalistic society for being a money-grubbing guy who takes advantages of people who are willing to let him take advantage of them. And then on top of that, we, we're, we come from a business that we live the ultimate dichotomy each and every day. We live a business where everybody think it, thinks it's fake, and because it, they think it's fake, they don't think it hurts. But as a wrestler, when somebody says the wrestling business fake, there's nothing that can hurt you more than hearing those words when you – never leave the ring that you're not in pain. And so, you know, I can't give you a definitive answer what's going to happen with, with my movie, but maybe, may, you know, just maybe the possibility exists for me to help the wrestling business. We'll have to wait and see what happens. It's one of those moments in time where, you know, there's, about, there's a bunch of shit about to go down. The WWF is going to have to answer the Chris Benoit thing. Maybe, you know, in the end, maybe what Chris did, if there's any good that could possibly come from it, is maybe an organization to protect wrestlers from themselves. 
wrestlers would kick against it hard as they can kick against it because that would somehow they would feel that would deprive them of their freedom. But for wrestlers to not have health insurance, for wrestlers to not have life insurance, for wrestlers to not have 401Ks and pension programs, there's not another professional entertainment organization in the world that isn't protected. And the reason they're protected is because they won't protect themselves. So in terms of the movie, we'll just have to wait and see what comes to fruition. There's a lot of a lot of shit about to go down. And you know what? You might see me in front of Congress. You might see me disappear. But the truth of the matter is, you know what? If I could help change the world, uh, I would certainly be willing to do that. Okay, well, I'm going to give Ed the office. This is the Ed in San Antonio show now. Ed, go for it. Okay, Max, I also wanted you're talking about Chris Benoit, and it's kind of like, you know, it's that time to talk about him. But also on that Wrestling Observer show, you told a very funny story about uh, – I don't really remember the whole thing, but I just remember all the Japanese wrestlers started punching each other in the face at dinner, and we're having a contest right. or something. Right, <laughs> yeah. I think I told that story last time, didn't I? Yeah, you did. Yeah, you know. I, I told that story. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the funny, the funny part about that is that certainly wasn't the first time. I will have to tell you a part of that I didn't tell you guys is Chris and I. We were very good at taking a powder at a moment when it, we knew a powder was appropriate, and they started throwing. Shin, uh, it, it's called. Uh, there's two kinds of uh, rice alcohol that are very popular in Japan. One's called obviously. Uh, 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 oh, God, what's it called? It's right off the tip of my tongue. But one's called shochu, which is kind of the lesser one of the the more popular uh, Japanese um, hard alcohol. What's the other one called, you guys? It's right. It's, it's sake. sake. Yeah, sake. Sake and shochu are the two very common alcohols in Japan. And these guys were chugging shochu. Shochu is not quite as strong as sake. And uh, it's more like a it's more like a like a slow gin or something rather than sake is probably like sixty to eighty proof and shochu is like sixty to thirty proof. And um, these guys were chugging glasses and they started throwing their glasses at each other and yelling at each other in Japanese. So Chris and I immediately took a powder and went and hid in our in our. Uh, motel room which was down about three flights of stairs and we hear these guys upstairs beating the shit out of each other and all of a sudden we get we hear this little knock on the door and uh you guys still there yes sir okay sorry i heard a weird noise i thought last time we got disconnected i went oh crap i don't want to be right in the middle of this one so anyway uh we we were chris and i were sitting in our bed just laying there going please, God, they don't come after us because we don't want to go and fight with these guys, right? And we hear this very soft little knock on the door. And I looked at Chris, and he looked at me, and he said, did you hear that? I said, yeah. Do we dare answer? I said, I'm like, shit, I don't know. So we hear it again, and I hear this. We both hear this, Maxu, Pita, Chrisu. I'm like, oh, shit. So we open the door. It's Tatsumi Fujinami. And Fujinami is one of those guys who absolutely respected that his look was everything in New Japan Pro Wrestling. And he came in our bedroom and slept there that night to stay away from the fights because he knew he was next. So the next morning on the bus, everybody had black eyes, everybody had swollen faces and jaws, except for Fujinami, Chris, and I, because we'd stayed in the, uh, in the room that night. So there's, a, there's a, an addition to that story. Alex, are you on, brother? 
Mr. Saint, are you still on? Oh, okay, okay. I, I, I swear I the technical difficulties with my phone tonight. Jesus Christ. Anyways, okay, so <laughs> we were we were talking earlier, and um, I'm not I'm not saying this is a excuse for anything that's ever happened in wrestling, but uh, we were saying earlier that the best way for someone to learn is to get on the road and actually work a regular schedule uh, daily is something that you brought up. Now, right. what do you think? What do you think about guys like uh, like a Rick Root or Kurt Henning who had probably been working daily since the time they had broke in, and how do you think that may have affected their untimely passing? Well, you know, I got to be honest with you. I, I mean, I think I brought it up. I think one of the things you have to remember, you can never forget about guys like Kurt and and, and Rick. And the guys who have passed Brian, you know, I mean, and the list goes on. Go, there's a site that, that categorizes all the wrestlers who have died, bam, bam, all those guys. We, as wrestlers, because we lack a union, because we lack medical attention, because we lack somebody that we can trust and go to and say, hey, I'm fucked up, man. What am I going to do? i got to go back out in the ring tomorrow. One of the problems that wrestlers are very, I mean, we, we all became very good at, first of all, we were all good amateur chiropractors. We would all adjust each other in the dressing room all the time. That's a fairly common thing. The other thing is that you get good at is you get good at self-medication. And the problem with self-medication is this, is riding the fine line between complete addiction, especially when you're dealing with, with pure heroin, which all pain pills have in them. And incidentally, anybody who thinks they're doing pain pills and they aren't a heroin addict, you're full of shit. I'm just going to tell you that straight up. Who the fuck are you kidding? If you're doing pain pills, you're a heroin addict. Whether you buy it in the street or whether you buy it at the pharmacy, it's a direct derivative of opium, and that's the bottom fucking line. And so when you start self-medicating yourself, what happens to you, and I, I was a victim of this. I, I got to the point, you guys, where I could eat I could eat 20, 10 blue volumes, which is 10-milligram volumes. I could eat 20 10-milligram volumes. Eat three health towns. This is when I decided I got I had to stop or I was going to die. I could eat 20 10 blue volumes, which are 10 milligrams. That's 200 milligrams of volume, which the PDR, the physician's desk reference, says that 50 milligrams of volume to a novice is lethal. I could eat 200 milligrams of volume, eat three health towns, 0.5 health towns, which are just a derivative and a, they're basically Ambien, you know, old school Ambien, and still be standing. You know, for somebody to understand that, you go to yourself, what the hell? I mean, my buddy Louis Spicoli, God rest his soul, is a classic example. He called me a week before he died and said, Max, he called me from the hospital. He'd already been in for one drug overdose. And he said, Max, I'm in the hospital. My mom found me in the driveway. I was unconscious. When they pumped my stomach, I had 47 somas in my stomach. And I begged him at that time, I said, Louie, please, I'm begging you, please stop eating the somas right now. They're going to get you. Because what happens is you build up such a resistance to those kinds of drugs that what happens is you'll eat, you know, you'll eat five pills, then you'll fall asleep. And then you wake up 30 minutes later and you can't remember when the last time you ate five pills, and then you eat another four pills. Then you wake up 15 minutes later and you can't remember when you ate those five pills or the last four pills, and then you eat another five pills. And by 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, you've got, you know, 20 or 30 lethal 
pills in your system, and eventually your system will reach uh, a saturation point. And that's what happens with these guys, man. They start eating pain pills to eliminate Because you've got to remember, you know, football players play football once a week, and then they get a week off. To, they don't get to recuperate. They've got to go practice and still do that. But they're not playing the full-on game, you know, seven days a week. Wrestlers, a good wrestler who's in his prime is wrestling 300 days a week, 300 to 330 days a week. When I was in WCW, I went for sometimes two and three months without a day off period. You know, what are you going to do if you blow a knee? Do you stop? Especially if your pay is based on a nightly. You do not go to that match. You've got to figure out how to wrestle. I worked for two weeks with a campylobacter, which is one of the worst stomach and intestinal flus you can possibly, food poisoning flus you can possibly get. I worked for two weeks with toilet paper stuck in my ass, eating pain pills as much as I could just to get through. And the unfortunate side is because there's no union to protect you, there's nobody out there who gives a shit whether you live or die except yourself, it's, easily, it's easy to self-medicate. And what doctor in the world who's going to follow the Hippocratic Oath isn't going to give you any pain pills you want because you walk into his goddamn office and your elbow's blown, your shoulder's blown, your back's screwed up, your knees are shot, you know, you, you've had your jaw broke because somebody threw a punch and, and didn't pull it right, you worked with the nasty boys for a, for a month solid and you're just tore out to pieces. You know, you've got to work hurt. Working hurt is part of the wrestling business. And then somebody says to you, it's all fake, and then so you live. Not only do you live this life of intense physical pain, but you live this incredible life of intense mental pain. Not only, I mean, going out in the ring, you guys, and that's what I want any wrestler, young wrestler who's listening to this, going into the ring is the joy of the wrestling business. Going and performing your art and figuring out how to control a crowd and how to make that crowd pop is the joy and the art of the business. It's when you walk behind that fucking curtain that the business gets ugly and dirty. And it is the hardest part of the business to handle. I could handle the pain. I could handle the, the, the nightly drudgery. I could handle the road. I could not handle the mental anguish that you dealt with on a constant basis because it is, it is relentless. It is 50 times more relentless than the physical pain because you can take a physical pain pill and get rid of that pain and figure out how to get in the ring the next night. But the mental anguish never goes away. And then you live a life where people don't respect what you do because the wrestling business has never exposed the business to the point where people can dismiss that and not talk about that anymore, which is something I've promoted my whole life. And so I have to say, man, it is a constant, constant battle. And guys like Rude, God rest his soul, guys like Kurt, God rest his soul, they reached their saturation point, and they tried to take it one step further, and it got them. It got them. All those guys that died from pain pill overdoses or Valium overdoses reached their saturation point, and their body said, fuck you. Since you spent a, a time in, an extensive time in Japan, how do you feel that uh, the Japanese uh, touring system affects the, the, the drug culture? Because obviously Japanese, they have a different culture about drugs, period. But how do right. you feel that if WWF were to adopt a, a touring schedule, um, how do you think that would affect the, the drug use among the boys? Brother, nothing's going to affect the drug use among the boys until there's some protection for the boys from the office. That's the truth of the fucking matter. Until the boys have a protection system in place from the office, the fucking business is going to stay the way it is. And the reason being is because there's no, there's no gap. There's nobody to say to Vince McMahon, because you, 
I've said this story. I think if you listen, is it Ed that's on the phone? Ed's not Alex. Oh, Alex but who's the other guy? The, the caller? Yeah, uh, the caller dropped he, off. Yeah, but anyway, if you if you're listening, Eddie, I think it was Eddie, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, but anyway, if you if you listen to the problem, man, the problem is, you know, Vince McMahon, it, it's infamous in the business that if you went in to Vince, let's say for example you were getting ready for a pay per view and you didn't want to do the job for somebody because you didn't feel it was right for your career, if you said to Vince, you know what, I'm not doing that, and Vince look, would look you straight in the eye and said, oh, you don't want to do that. That's not what you want to do? Okay, you, over there, job guy, put his tights on. You, get out of my dressing room, you're fired. Who's there to protect you from that? It doesn't matter if you've been in the business for 50 years. Vince has the last say. There's nobody for Vince to answer to, period. And until Vince has somebody, an organization, that he has to answer to, which I'll be honest with you, I don't think it's ever going to happen. I'll be honest with you. Until there's a union in place to protect the boys from themselves, that's what i got to stress over and over again. And the reason is, is because you love the wrestling business. That's why I'm not in it anymore, dudes. I knew it would kill me. I knew I'd hit that saturation point. We wouldn't be having this conversation right now. I'd be one of those guys on a list of dead fuckers. And the reason being is because you don't have a choice. You're faced with a situation where, when, and I don't care who it is. I don't care how good of shape you're in. I don't care how badass you are. I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how much you, you value your body. At some point in time, you're not going to have a choice but to take pain pills and Valiums to get you out and make it so that you can go get in the ring tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And that's a fact. And until there is something in place to protect the boys from that kind of drudgery, there is no way you're going to stop what's happening in the wrestling business right now. Mm. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you, um, as far as, as – the boys, the boys using whatever they need to get by. I'm not going to say anything because I'll, I'll admit to anybody, I've never been a worker. Yes, I've bumped a few times, but I've never been a worker. So Alex, my co-host, is one of the boys. So Alex has the right to ask you those questions, and thank you for asking them for me, Alex, because I would have felt like I was out of line if I would have asked. Because I'm well, not. You one know of the what, boys. man? You know what? You don't ever have to worry about that. Let me tell you why, man. You know, I had a great teacher in college say something to me. I asked him one time, man, we, I was in a, a film, a critical film class uh, in my fifth year of college, and this guy was talking, would, would, his whole job was to criticize film, right? And, mm-hmm. and I raised my hand one day and I said, if you think you can make film better, why don't you make it? And he said, I'm not here to say I can make film. I'm here to say I criticize film. You should never feel like that as a great journalist. And you know what? You have every right to ask that question because you're a journalist. And if you don't ask those questions, brother, I've got to be honest with you, then you're only doing yourself an injustice. And the truth of the matter is, man, it's going to take a lot of motherfuckers asking those kinds of questions to make a difference for the guys who are out there in the fucking trenches every day. And until the world wakes up to what the wrestling business is going through, guys are going to keep dying because young guys come into the business and they see that shit and it's glamorous to them for the first couple of years. They think it's the coolest shit in the world that they can eat all the goddamn pain pills they want to eat and nobody gives a shit whether they eat them or not. You know what? It ain't long before that turns into treachery and I'm living proof of that. I know the fact. I mean, I got a lot of friends in the wrestling business. Darren Matthews is a classic example. Darren is one of those guys uh, I'm talking about um, Lord Stephen Regal. 
And I hope he's fucking listening because he's one of those people that turned his back on me at a time when I never thought he should turn his back on somebody. But you know what the truth of the matter is? Darren wasn't a big pill addict. Darren didn't do that shit. And I'm here to tell you he's going to be another statistic unless he figures out on his own how to get out of it. Well, you know, it shouldn't be that way, man. It shouldn't be that way. And that's the problem in the wrestling business, man. Until people are educated and understand what these fucking guys go through, and until there is a body away from wrestlers that say, you know what, man, somebody has to protect guys who won't protect themselves. It's happened in every entertainment industry and every athletic industry since the conception. Baseball has a union. Basketball has a union. Football has a union. And why do they have unions? Because the owners were raping the fucking players because they could. Because the guys would go out there for free. They'd pay. I'll tell you right now, and you mark my words on this, if you could blind interview the 20 guys that are in the WWF right now, the, the young kids, and they said, you know what, we're not going to pay you tomorrow. You've got to pay the WWF to go get in the fucking ring every night. They're so addicted to the business and to television, they'd fucking pay to be in the business, and you can mark my words on that. Mm. Now, Max, um, you being a father and my, myself being a father, when – well, okay, I'm, I'm going to tell you this. Um, I was watching – I was watching uh, – uh, some wrestling today on the couch. I, I stay home with my son. He's eight years old, and he's never been exposed to pro wrestling. And right. I was watching uh, an eight-man tag match from Chikara out in the East Coast, and it's more of a, a kid-friendly type promotion where it's huh? more acrobatic than, than violence. And I, I had him sit down, and, and, and I had him watch that match, and it's the first time that I exposed my son. And it right. wasn't violent. It was more of the acrobatic junior heavyweight type style. Um, my question is, yeah, lucha type. Um, what age do you think it would be appropriate to introduce your child to pro wrestling, if you would? You know, you know, I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. Until wrestling comes out of the closet, completely out of the closet, until wrestling makes that move where it has the courage to completely expose itself to the world so that the first question out of everybody's fucking mouth is, that, is it fake anymore? To how, you know, wrestling needs to take the premise of movies. I've always believed that. I said this to Vince, and I've heard him say it consequently as a result of this. I don't know if it was directly because of me, but I know I've heard Vince say this. But until wrestling, until you turn wrestling on, and you turn wrestling on and go, hey, this is wrestling. I know it's fixed. I know that the endings are, are not arbitrary. I know it's not spontaneous athletics. But I am here to be entertained, and I am willingly suspending my disbelief to be entertained. Until wrestling takes that mentality, you can't do this with it. Because this is what I think, and this is a great question. Here's what I think. Until wrestling can be in grade schools, until wrestling can be in high school and have a wrestling club, until wrestling can be as accepted in American culture as baseball, basketball, football, amateur wrestling, and the likes, it's never going to change. And, you're going to, and until there's a union to protect these people, it's never going to change. And you face this with your child, just like I would face it with mine. If you introduce them to the wrestling business the way it stands right now, I don't care how good they are, I don't care how sharp they are, you're introducing him to a culture of serious, with serious problems. And until that culture changes, nothing can make it safe for your children. Now, that doesn't mean you can't do everything in your power to make your child a great kid. I'm not suggesting that. But I think wrestling, I mean, imagine if you could have a wrestling club in high school. 
imagine if you could teach eight-year-olds how to take bumps in the ring and you could start. You know, that's why I think Vince has missed the fucking boat. If he did what I'm talking about, if he exposed it to the world and then started to infiltrate the culture with it so that it was like soccer, it is an incredibly strenuous athletic exercise. It is an incredibly difficult exercise no matter how you look at it. It is not easy. It is no matter how you look at it, it's still wrestling, it's still ballet, it's still dancing, and it is an incredible human endeavor. But until the core of the wrestling thinking changes, you're always going to endanger your children by putting them in it. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't. What that means is if you're going to put your kid in it, put them in it, smarten them up quick, and get them on the road to understanding what that means and understand that it is a business where there is no protection for them. And it's a dog-eat-dog world, and you've got to figure out how to get yourself to the top. And the worst thing you can do is get involved in the culture of self-medication and, and, and self-mutilation uh, in terms of doing anabolic steroids to get yourself that direction. But until we change the fundamental thinking about professional wrestling, wrestling is always going to be dangerous for your, for your children to be in. Well, so I, the, I, answer I, to that question, the answer to that question is there is no safe age, brother. There is okay. no safe age. There really isn't. I, I, because I used, I used the analogy with ballet where they're, they're dancing, and I, I explained to him, yes, son, it's a work. And, you know, and I, I explained to him um, yeah. because my dad didn't smarten me up. Okay? 2020 smartened me up. Okay? In 1985, 2020 smartened me up. And, you know, I kind of kind of yeah, thought it was something hooky, but, you yeah, know. Yeah, but even I, now, I think about think about. about Think about 2020. It didn't totally totally smarten you up because Dr. D, he wanted get John Stossel won a lawsuit against Dr. D for busting his eardrum. So even even 2020, John uh, Dr. D was was the fall guy for Vince to protect the business in 2020. At the end of that, you were still left in the ambiguous mode when he said, "Is that fake?" And then he ended up winning a lawsuit about his eardrum being broke. It never got exposed. It's never been exposed. And, it's never, and the reason is is because that's the only way Vince McMahon can maintain autonomous control over the business. He, has, he, is, he is absolutely the, the king of a monarchy. No one pushes Vince around. Vince has the final say. And there's no single individual in the wrestling business that can fight against Vince McMahon because if you try – he will bury you. He will bury you if you try to start a union. He will bury you if you try to protect the boys. He will bury you if you try to give the boys health insurance. He will bury you in any fashion if you try to start an opposition organization to him. He will bury you. And until that changes, until the fucking government of this country realizes that Vince McMahon is a monopoly and that that monopoly needs to be broken, and that, that that monopoly needs to be changed, and the boys need a union to protect them from themselves. It will never change, brother. And I, I and I, I've said I said it ten years ago, and I'll say it now, and I can say it now with complete confidence because I know I'm never going back to the wrestling business. I don't need it. I'm smart enough to make a living away from the wrestling business and do my own thing. But the truth of the matter is, the boys need protection from themselves, and until there's a union, the shit's never going to change. Okay, Alex, Alex, I'm going to put you on the spot on the air. Since you are a young boy, you, you have a handful of matches under your belt. Have you ever thought of or have been, been asked, you know, would you be willing to, to get on the juice on steroids? Have you ever been asked? Or has it ever crossed your mind? Uh, 
Yeah. I don't want to put you on the spot, brother, but, you know, hey, we're open here. Hey, let me let me do you a favor, man, Alex. Let me do Alex a favor here, brother. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take Alex off the hot seat, and I'm going to put it on me. All right, Alex? <laughs> there you okay. go. <laughs> I'm going to take care of you on this, brother. Nobody has to okay, fucking ask out. Has to fucking ask Alex whether he wants to do the fucking juice or not. Let's be goddamn real here. In order for how big are you, Alex? How tall are you? Uh, five nine, two hundred pounds. You five nine, two hundred pounds. Okay. Now, Alex, in his if at his best, he could hope to be a Chris Benoit style character, Eddie Guerrero, somebody who's who's noted noted for his great working ability, and he could have absolute greatness in the wrestling world. No question about it. Can he ever be a fucking Hogan? Can he ever be a Bundy? Can he ever be somebody that's the giant? You know, that guy that's the big motherfucker. Even even The Rock. What's The Rock? 6'3", you know, 240, 250. You know, there's limitations, and you can get over. That doesn't mean anything. But here's the point for Alex, and this is why I'm going to defend Alex right now. Nobody has to fucking ask Alex whether he'd do the fucking juice or not. Alex has his – this is what I'm saying. Alex has his own personal choice to make because I'm telling you right now, Vince McMahon – called Alex on the phone and said, Alex, I want you to come to New York and wrestle for me, but I'm not going to pay you. You've got to pay me $1,000 a week to be on fucking New York television. I guarantee you Alex would talk to every relative in his family. If he doesn't personally have the finances to cover it, he would fucking pay. He would find that money, go to New York right now, and work for the World Wrestling Entertainment Organization. And I'm here to tell you, Alex is, is the exact kind of wrestler who I'm afraid for. He, nobody's going to fucking say to him, Alex, you got to do the gas. Vince isn't going to come up to him and hand him a bottle of steroids and say, dude, you got to be 220 or there's no fucking way you're ever going to work for me. Alex is going to do it by necessity because he loves the business. He wants to be in it so fucking bad, he would do anything. I read a study when I was in college. When I was a college athlete, I read a study, and this summarizes the way young people think. They interviewed 100 NCAA athletes, and they asked them this question. If we could give you a drug right now that would make you number one in your field at between 18 and 22 years old, would you take it knowing that by 40 years old you'd be dead? And 90% of the fucking people they interviewed said they'd take it to be number one in their sport knowing they'd be dead at 40. That's the mentality you've got to understand. Alex loves this business. Alex wants to be a part of this business. He turns the fucking TV on every week and sees these guys that are monsters. God damn it, man, he wants to be a monster. He wants to be involved. So he has no choice. He's put, he's put in a situation where there's nobody to protect Alex from himself. He's going to go out and talk to some dumbass in the gym, do fucking steroids, and get big. He's going to get advice from not a, a clinical physician, because I personally believe in steroids for professional wrestling. It's a good thing for them, because it's done in a correct clinical situation. It allows your body to rebuild. But guys like Alex, they don't have that. They have to self-medicate. They have to teach themselves the school of hard knocks. You know what? At 18, 20, 25 years old, you feel like you're fucking 20 foot tall and bulletproof. But until somebody's there to protect you from yourself and say, no, Alex, you can't do that. That's going to kill you. He'll do it. And that's the sad part. And Alex is just one guy. Alex may not want to hear what I just said, but I know deep down in his heart, he knows I'm fucking telling the truth. And every kid who wants to be in the wrestling business feels the exact same way. When you step in that fucking ring the first time and you feel what it feels like to control a crowd, you will do anything it takes 
to be in front of that crowd for the rest of your life. And if that means doing anabolic steroids that are going to kill you by the time you're 40 or 50 years old or debilitate you completely because you've blown your hips, you've had an incredible muscle tear, you're going to do it. And that's the sad part about the wrestling business. Where is there somebody to stop that kind of bullshit from happening? You know, most people don't know this. I just wanted a quick amendment to this. In 1985, there was a, uh, I think it was 85 or 86, there was an NFL football strike. Gene Upshaw, the president of the, of the NFL uh, Players Union, had a mandate. He had three things that he said was the biggest problem with the NFL in 1985. Number one was artificial turf. It had taken the average, player of the, the average life of a player down from 6.5 years or 5.7 years down to 3.6 years because these guys were basically playing on top of carpet, on top of concrete. I don't care how badass you are, your bones are going to feel that. That was one. Number two, anabolic steroids. And here's the reason why. For the first time in the NFL's history, and if you guys don't know this, go back and look. Go back and look at the lines the offensive and defensive lines in 1985. Those guys were 300 fucking pounds running a 4.740. Now, it's physics, man. If you're fucking 300 pounds and running a 4.6 or a 4.740 and you're hitting a quarterback, it doesn't take much for you to understand that 300 pounds hitting a guy at, 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 at a 4.740 versus a 200-pound guy hitting a, a guy at 4.7. Uh, you know, it's physics, man. Now you look at the NFL, Gene Upshaw got that shit changed, and, and, and anabolic steroids are an absolute no-no in the NFL. They try very hard to stop anabolic steroid use in the NFL. You know how you know that? Look at the fucking lines in the NFL today. Every one of the fucking front guys now are what? They're fat again. But they ain't <laughs> running a they ain't running a four seven forty, dude. They're running a five second forty. They're running a four eight forty. They ain't running a four six forty. And that's a big fucking difference, man. That's why the player life has gone up and he drew he legitimately got the natural turf thing. And then the other thing was the last thing was uh was a uh, 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 line of scrimmage infractions and equal penalty for personal fouls. Gene Upshaw's deal was that the third law, just to finish the point, was his deal was that if you got called for a personal foul, you were out as long as the player you intentionally hurt was out. So if he was out for a week, you were out for a week. If he was out for five months, you were out for five months. And if you give him a lifelong career-ending injury on a personal foul, you were out. That never came to fruition. But the other two things did. And I think if you look now, and you look at the NFL, I'd almost guarantee you the average player life has gone back up to probably five years, five and a half years. But in 85, it was down to 3.6 fucking years. So, Alex, I'm trying to protect you. I know your mentality. I know your heart. But I guarantee you, you're not the only one that feels that way. And that's the dangerous mentality of professional wrestlers who are trying to be the best. Now, I, I have to apologize for putting Alex on the spot, but I did have to ask the question considering he's a young boy in the business. Now, I'll tell you, Alex doesn't have the body, okay, but he has a really good look, and he's a student of the business. He yep. learns, and he learns from the best. He cuts a damn from great promo, and I have, other than Michael Modest, this is a shoot, Alex. This is from the heart. I've never seen anybody at an indie show get the heat that you got when I saw you in March. And that's a fucking shoot, other than Michael Modest. He's a, he's a, a completely different league, but that's the truth. And let Alex, you work hard at what you do. And, and I let me tell you something. Over. And let me tell you something, Alex. 
And you may not believe this, but let me tell you, this is the truth. This is what I was saying about Fit Finley. I don't know if you've ever met Fit. He's about 5'8", five, 5'9", five, if he's lucky with his boots on, with a two-inch lift in his boots. He, if he's lucky, he's 200 pounds. But I'm here to tell you right now, that doesn't matter. The, your size does not matter if you're a great heel and you're a great worker. Be a great worker first because you know what? There ain't a lot of great workers anymore, and great workers can always have a job in the wrestling business because muscle heads will always need somebody to lead them through the fucking matches. And that's what's wrong with the business right now. There ain't a bunch of great workers. There ain't a bunch of guys out there who are students of the art of the business. There's a bunch of guys out there doing the gas that want to be on television, that want a Hollywood break, that want to do that. B, if you love the business, Alex, concentrate on the art. The rest of it will take care of itself because if you're a good artist, you will have work the rest of your fucking life, and that's my promise to you. Wow. Well, well thank you very much. <laughs> that's that, that's another another lesson for you. Now, Max, I'm, I'm going to tell you this. There, there's a reason that I chose to have Alex as my co-host, so that I can have guys like you on, guys like Adam Pierce and, and Jeff Hernandez, because I, I want Alex and the young kids that are breaking in now to learn the business properly, because what Vince is doing, that is killing what we love. And you're you know, absolutely right. The, the death you know, of the art of wrestling is what's going is why is why wrestling's in the shitter right now. It's not just because of Chris. It's because Vince has selectively. Alex, where's Alex going to go? You know, the truth of the matter is, man, it takes you ten years to understand this business, and it takes you ten years of working at least eight months a year. I mean, every night to understand this business, man. Alex, if he if he's at, at five years, if he's got a pretty good head on his shoulders, yeah, he can go get that work. But I'm telling you right now, at 10 years, when I quit the business, the light bulb popped on in my head. I really felt that the light bulb really popped on in my head, and I really, really got it. And I'm telling you, Alex, from the bottom of my heart, it won't be till you've been in the business for 10 years that you'll really feel like you got this shit and you really, really understand it. And to understand it, it takes persistence at the art form, not fucking doing steroids, not doing pain pills, not doing the road. It's understanding the art and loving every night you go out there that when that finish comes, every motherfucker in that arena is on his feet cheering for you to, to, for that finish to go down, whether you're a heel or a babyface. And that's the truth of the matter. And so if I can say anything to young wrestlers, it's focus on the art. All the other bullshit is fucking just riffraff that comes along with the business, good or bad. The most important thing you can fucking learn is learning the art of the wrestling business and understanding the true emotion that comes behind being a great heel, being able to lead a fucking dumbass musclehead babyface through a match and making him look like a million bucks. You get that down, I guarantee you Vince will hire you in fucking two minutes. So... How how um what kind of things were you because uh one thing I would I would like to bring up is uh how concerned are people about pushes something is something like pushes now how yeah. how often is how much of a priority is that to a lot of guys and how does that affect the mentality in, in a lot of locker rooms? Well, I mean that's everything, isn't it, man? You get a push, you're you've arrived, haven't you, man? The, the fucking office says, you know what, Alex? This week we're going to push you. This month we're going to push you. Next month we're going to push you. We're going to be on TV because the truth of the matter in professional wrestling is, you're off TV, you ain't shit. 
They pull you off TV, you're a nobody in two weeks. I know that. I felt it with Man Mountain Rock, and I felt it with Max Payne. When they fucking decide to take you off TV and you're not on TV anymore, you are nobody instantly. It's being on television every week that makes you a star, man. So what you have to look at is, is it a push that really matters? Yeah, it does. But you know what? Being able to control the art form, being able to be a great artist has got to be your focus. The pushes and all that shit, that will come with time, Alex. What's got to come first is your ability to lead a wrestling match from beginning to end, and it's fucking hard, dude. I don't care how much experience you have. How long have you been in the business, Alex? Oh, I, I just started training last August. So how many matches did you get under your belt? Uh, ten. You're fucking so goddamn green, Alex. It doesn't even begin. I, I, I mean, honestly, I'm not trying. I'm not taking a piss out of you, brother. I'm telling you the truth. You started the business last August. You got ten matches under your belt. The truth of the matter was, 15 years ago, you could have gone to a territory. You could have been working every night, even if it was doing a job. And a great promoter, if he liked your fucking style, would have put you with a fucking veteran, and you'd have been married to the guy for six months, a year. And then when you got done with that program, you'd have done another program. You'd have been married to another guy who was a fucking veteran. Great promoters did that. That doesn't happen anymore. How do you go about getting that experience in the ring? How do you go? I don't have the answer for you, Alex. I'm not telling you I do, but that's the truth of the matter. You need to have 200 matches a fucking year for the next five years to be a gifted wrestler, Alex, and that's the truth of the matter. And then, only then, will you be prepared for the next five years, which is when you fine-tune your craft and you hone the ability to be a wrestler. And anybody that thinks they're ready for a fucking push after six months in the wrestling business and ten matches, bro, you got you got to change your priority. you got to change the way you think. And the way you got to think is how do I be experienced in the wrestling ring because there is no substitute for experience. Yeah, see, that's, the, that's really the, the unfortunate, especially out here on the, on the West Coast, Con. It's, it's, it's just really hard to get get any kind of breaks where you get well, there, no, regular Alex, string of you know, bad the, the thing is, brother, there aren't the veterans out here. There, there aren't the veterans out here that, that can work with the young kids. You know, really. That's what's missing out here. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, that, that's what's missing out here is there, there isn't that, that, that veteran. I tell Jeff this all the time. There isn't that veteran leadership in the locker room. With the exception of SoCal Pro. With the exception of SoCal Pro, there's Adam Pierce in that locker room. That's the exception out there. And, you know, that's what's really missing is, is these, these older gentlemen, they, they leave the business and they, they don't want to hang out and give back. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know what, what I can say, but, you know, obviously that, that's, you know, one of the parts that's missing. Um, what do you think about that, Alex? Well, I mean, there's, uh, there's still there, – I mean, there's, there's veterans around. I mean, there's, uh, there's Rick Drayson up in L.A., who has definitely right. had a lot of impact on me. And then even, you know, down here, uh, someone who actually Adam Pierce I'll bring up, uh, Baby Slim, you know, from WSX. Mm-hmm. He's, he's also been a big, big help to me. And there's others. But it's just uh, just getting your foot into, into new companies. That's the, that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the hardest part because, I mean, there isn't a territory system anymore. So it's just hard getting your foot out there because there's a lot of guys a lot more talented than me who uh, – who can't get their foot in anywhere else either. It's just it's really unfortunate. And then there are guys who are ready for the, the next step, and they can't get there either. So it's just it's real unfortunate. <laughs> well, and and there and there you have it. There, there in and of itself, uh, Alex is what is where the problem lies, man. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I, I can't. 
I can't even imagine. I'll be honest with you, man. I can't even imagine being trying to be a professional wrestler today. I mean, at least God, thank God, when I was in 1985, when I was starting the business, there were still a couple of old territories still left around. I mean, Memphis, like I told you, man, I was only doing $250, and I still have my pay stubs, too. It's funnier and shit. Every once in a while, I'll pay, take those out just to humble my dumb ass. I was driving five, three to 5,000 miles a week and making $250. You know, But the truth of the matter is, I don't care. I would have paid at that point in time to fucking make that 250 because I was wrestling every fucking night. I mean, Monday night, Monday night was fucking uh, Memphis. Tuesday night was Louisville. Wednesday night was Evansville. You know, a couple of towns in Mississippi or in Tennessee on Thursday and Friday. Television Saturday morning and then uh, Nashville Saturday night and then sometimes a gig on Sunday. That doesn't exist anymore, man. You don't get to travel up and down the road with old timers, man, and who know the fucking business. Guys who, you know, are undercard guys who are, are, you know, are trying to get their chops back or trying to get a shot in the WWF. There's no minor league to get you to the show now, and that's the problem. Where do you learn how to deal with the show if you're going in? I mean, Alex, your biggest curse, bro, would be to fucking go to WWF with ten matches under your belt. Jesus Christ, what the fuck would you do, dude? I mean, you'd be you'd be inundated. You'd be treated in the dressing room like shit. You know, with that kind of experience level, I feel so. I feel for all you guys. And the sad part about it is, Vince could fix that if he wanted to. Vince could fucking take the money out of his pocket and build a small territory that did a local television promotion, run fucking towns, eat the money, build a fucking small territory where guys could go and learn and train. But you know why he doesn't? Because he don't give a fuck. Because the money has just been pouring into him since day one, and it goes through cycles, and then he'll find another guy like fucking Steve Austin or fucking The Rock that'll roll in and he'll fucking elevate his business back up to, you know, some big level, and then it'll be good, and people will come to the show. And then you guys know it as well as I do. You go to a fucking show now and expect to see a real wrestling match, 15 minutes of a good match that tells a great story and has the fucking people rocking and rolling. It doesn't exist anymore, you guys. And the reason it doesn't is because where the fuck is a guy like Alex going to go to get five years of experience before he gets taken to the show? It's not about the art form anymore. If they don't fucking like it in New York on TV now, they fucking cut and start the match again. I mean, that's just a matter of fucking fact. Well, that's bullshit. That is bullshit, and that's why the business is fucked up. Because Vince... You know, having something and wanting something are two completely different things. The WCW was a great training ga- ground for the for for guys starting out in the business, for guys who wanted to go like Alex. Alex could probably get booked as a job guy in a WCW, work four or five times a week doing televisions and small shows, and he'd ha- he'd be out on the road. He'd be learning from veterans. He could embrace the culture and do all that. Well, that don't exist anymore. So now what does a guy like Alex do? He's been in the business since August (laughs) and had 10 matches. My heart aches for you, Alex. It aches for you, dude. And it aches for any young guy trying to come in the business because it ain't going to get better until I I just don't see it changing until, one, either Vince McMahon falls and the whole shit starts again from the bottom and little organizations can pop up all around the United States. Because if a little organization pops up, what the fuck's going to happen? Vince is going to come in and squash him. Vince is going to come in and shut you down. I had it happen to me. We ran a show in my hometown down in the, down in the uh, 
the fairgrounds. And as soon as Vince found out there was another wrestling organization, he fucking ran opposition to me that night and killed me. That fucking night, he ran a fucking show in Salt Lake City and killed me. Huh. How, the, how, the fuck, how the fuck do you compete with that? How do you compete with a guy who's got a billion-dollar empire who can fucking shut you up and, and stop you in a heartbeat? You can't, man. And then that's, that's the sad part about the wrestling business. Until that little territory comes back into fruition or a different mentality altogether comes into fruition where a guy like Vince has the fucking foresight to create a small territory and keep it going no matter how much money he's pissing away to give guys like Alex a, a chance to go down the highway every night with old-timers, to be taught by old-timers, to have veterans who are bookers and promoters watching these guys every night. I mean, classic example, Rip Rogers. To have a guy like Rip Rogers watching you at the curtain every night and telling you how to make your match better, how, how for you to tell your story better, for you to be a good fucking wrestler, that doesn't exist anymore. And I'm so sad for guys like Alex that it doesn't. And the sad part, the, the saddest part of that fucking whole testimony right there is I don't see it changing in the near future. Wow. Wow is all I have to say. Um, Maxie, we're out of time, brother. We, we've gone two hours solid. Um, unbelievable. Um, if anybody wants to contact Max, it would be myspace.com backslash Max Payne. Uh, I'm sure Max would, you know, would love to uh, do interviews or hell, even a seminar. Uh, uh, anybody, who, anybody who wants to contact me, you can find me on MySpace. I think it's Max Payne 61, actually. There you go. And or you can go to uh, myspace.com backslash rubberguard radio. Max is uh, yep. one of my top friends, so uh check him out. Daryl, thank you for your time, brother. Hey, it was absolutely my pleasure. You can call me anytime. You know, one of the things I told everybody, you know, and I'll make sure this happens is I'm gonna take a picture of my B bus T shirt and I'm gonna mm -hmm. make sure you get a copy of it because I don't think anybody has ever seen the WCW official version of the B-Bus tour. You remember what I told you? I think I, I think you guys asked me about the B-Bus tour. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? I, I'm going to take a picture of that T-shirt, and I'll make sure you get a, a picture that you can distribute to your fans so that you can see I'm telling you the truth. The WCW actually made his T-shirts. I'll make sure my wife and I will get a picture uh, taken of that, and I'll get it sent to you because I'd like you guys to see that. But, yeah, anybody who wants to get a hold of me, anybody who wants a seminar, anyone who, anybody who wants an interview, don't hesitate to call me. Alex, God bless you, man. I love you. Good luck. Don't get caught in the trap. Try to stay sane, and most importantly, focus on the fucking art. The art is what will save you no matter how you look at it. It's the one thing in the wrestling business. If you understand the art, you're fucking 15 steps ahead of everybody else because everybody else just wants to be on the gas, look good in the ring, and they don't give a shit what happens when the bell rings. You know how to lead. You know how to teach people how to do this business. You can always succeed because you know what? Vince desperately needs guys who know how to run a match. Well, thank uh, you very much, Max. Good luck wow. to you, brother. All right, Max, uh, we'll be in contact, and uh, hopefully we can have you on again because uh, I thoroughly enjoy sitting under the pain learning tree. It's my you know pleasure what? to have you on, sir. My, my pleasure, too. And anytime, man, you need an interview, you need somebody to fill in for you, whatever it takes, bro, you give me a call anytime. I, I had an absolute blast. And I, I appreciate the forum. Awesome. Brother, I'll be talking to you very soon. Take it easy. Thanks, man. You guys have a great one. All right. Oh, Alex. Wow. Alex, Alex, what, what, what can I say, brother? What wow. can I fucking say? <laughs> Unbelievable.
Oh, yeah, one word is wow. And and I'd like to apologize on the air for putting you on the spot, but I figured you being a young boy in the business, you needed to hear that from a veteran of his stature. Um, you know, if if we got heat, then we got heat, but I figured I felt that it was the best possible thing for, for you and the younger kids out there learning the business. You needed to hear it. Um, you know, like I said, this is I do this for you know for my own enjoyment and also for the younger kids to you know learn this shit uh, properly because I I have the I know things are going to change, things are going to be shook up. Um, anybody want to book you? How could they book you, Alex? Uh, MySpace, www.myspace backslash CM Saint. Oh, tremendous, tremendous. Oh, uh, what's that other company you work for? Oh yeah, NewWayForWrestling.com. Uh, yeah, new way for us on that com. Awesome, awesome. All right, brother. Well, uh, I'll be talking to you very soon. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna cut you off and I'm gonna wrap up the show if it's all right with you. All right, then. thanks for I'll coming on. All right, then we'll all talk right, to you the next show. All right, man. Oh, wow, another unbelievable show with Max Payne. Um, I have I had no idea where this one was going, but it was truly amazing. Uh, we we went past the two hour mark. So uh, those that were listening to the stream, you're going to have to download and, and listen to the rest of the show. Uh, let's run down the sponsors, FogCityWrestling.com. Uh, keep your eyes out for uh, Fog City, all the news and notes and all that fun stuff. Um, and my sponsor, WrestleWarehouse.com, uh, DVDs, T-shirts, all kinds of stuff. Uh, you can get SoCal Pro DVDs, uh, anything from 2008 with uh, Adam Pierce was all golden. Uh, you can also hit us on MySpace, myspace.com backslash RubberGuardRadio. Uh, you can get the first half of our archives at RubberGuardRadio.com. We're going to get that site updated Sunday. And uh, for the other half of the archives, that will be blogtalkradio.com backslash RubberGuardRadio. And if you want to contact me, my personal email is kidzombie2000 at AOL.com. Uh, keep your eyes out because uh, Wrestle Warehouse and RubberGuardRadio will be announcing some very special projects that we have in the works, so uh, keep your ears peeled. And uh, we're not going to be having a show this Thursday uh, due to uh, some family commitments. So, uh, yeah, I'm not going to have a show Thursday. Uh, we'll be back on Tuesday with a very big announcement, and I'm not quite sure who we're going to have on the show, but keep your eyes peeled. So we'll let you guys know, and we'll be talking to you all next week.